everybody. Welcome to another episode of the show. I'm Michael Petro, and joining us in the virtual living room, us meaning me, and horror expert, and if Dr. Seuss could make a character into a human being, Jimmy Skinner, and me get to sit down with director Doug Mitchell, talk to him on our Manitobans Making Movies series. We know he's from Toronto, but it's like Neil Young. He was born here, and Doug's been here long enough, so we lay claim to both of them now. I now knight you as a Manitoban Doug. I'm sure you knew that before, and it doesn't matter. Anyways, Doug Mitchell's on the show. We talk about his career, what got him in the film, how he moved from Ontario to Manitoba and working out here. What has he worked on? Let's just go through the credits. Okay, we have we have a little show on HBO about Winnipeg called Less Than Kind. Everybody in Winnipeg knows about this show. It, it's quintessentially Winnipeg, and he's that's where he kind of cut his teeth. We also have uh, not one, but two Chucky movies. He's worked with that damn doll, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we've also got the Pinkertons, the uh, Sheriff Show filmed in Canada. Uh, what else do we have? Specifically, the big thing, Burden of Truth, this series on CBC. It's a crime drama. It's one of the best crime dramas I've ever watched. It just ended. And we get to talk about his time working with Peter Mooney, Kristen Kruk, the stars of the show, Kristen Kruk being from Smallville, Peter Mooney being from Rookie Blue, and also local Winnipeg talent as well. Uh, so if you were a fan of Burden of Truth, there's a big portion dedicated to his career and time on Burden of Truth. Uh, Doug is a true gentleman, and he answered all of our nerdy questions about the Chucky doll. So, Doug, thank you so much for putting up with two film nerds for a couple hours. That was very gentlemanly and kind of you and, and an education as well. So that's who's on the show. Uh, anybody who's been here before, you can skip the line, get your snacks, head into the theater. show's about to begin. Uh, if you're new and uh, this is your first time and you've pressed play, thank you, first of all. Second, therealdebaters.ca is all I want you to know. That's where everything is us. You can see us. You can subscribe to the show there by learning about all the platforms we're on. You can read our blogs. You can uh, buy our merch if you're so inclined. we got some not-so-commonplace merch there. I think we've got a skateboard still or two. Uh, and then if you want to donate like some pocket change to production costs, because that's where the money would go, you can do that there as well. So therealdebaters.ca. It's pretty simple. Therealdebaters at gmail.com. If you'd like to send one of us an email, send it off. We'll send it back. And the Real Debaters, or sorry, Real Debaters online. At Real Debaters on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Those are the three places you can follow everything about the show. Uh, and lastly, this is the portion I like to uh, do and just thank everybody who's been listening, specifically in the top five places in Canada and the top five places in America. We like and we love that everybody listens to the show, but these are the places that are doing some heavy lifting for us. So to our fans in Winnipeg, thank you for always leading the charge. Followed up by Kentville, Vancouver, Regina, and Selkirk our top five Canadian cities listening to the most real debaters they possibly can. Jimmy, you've got a hometown base now, buddy. I mean, we always knew people from Selkirk were listening, but now they're spiking. So that's all because of Jimmy Skinner. To all of our friends south of the border, San Jose, Cedar Grove, Ashburn, Southington, and New Rochelle. I wonder if that's the New Rochelle from Catch Me If You Can. Could it be? Let us know. Send us an email. Anyways, that's it. That's all, everybody. I give you Doug Mitchell. I'll cue the reel, and you enjoy the show. Let's tidy up this tangle of film by putting it on a reel. Here is a motion picture film. A thousand feet. 16,000 separate photographs. Welcome, everyone. The official space section of the chart. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Sir, you're out of order. I don't I show you out of order. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's get this in. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another Real Debaters production. I am Michael Petro. Joining me in the virtual living room, that is Zoom this week, is Jimmy Skinner. Say hello, Jimmy. 
Hey, everybody. Hi. Hello. Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy brought his headset to the party today, and uh, we were just talking about it before we started recording that Jimmy's very Red Baron, so we're going to try to remember to get a photo of this. Uh, <laughs> we'll make a vintage World War II montage of you in a plane, and it'll... It'll actually work. You, like if you put on a bomber jacket, I would. I'd be like, "You're from Memphis, Bell." <laughs> like, what's the name of your plane? That's when I, I, I'm looking at. It, I'm like, you, "What is it? Like, Sweet Dolly? Would that be the name of your plane?" <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, if I had a plane, I would be too afraid to fly it if it was a Boeing. <laughs> yeah, after after last year and last weekend with that flaming engine, I uh, yeah didn't like it. No, not something you want to see on television. Anyways, in the living room with Jimmy and myself is a Winnipeg director who um, I have been watching from afar because I'm, I watched a season of one of his shows. He's worked. I've watched multiple shows that this man has worked on. Um, so I feel it was about damn time that he came on the show. We are talking to director Doug Mitchell from Winnipeg, Manitoba. Hello, Doug. How you doing, guys? Uh, real, real nice treat to be on this show it's uh, uh, it's becoming a more well-known um, thing in the industry I've been talking to some of my buddies about it and uh, some of them have heard about you guys some of them haven't so it's nice to spread the word and be part of it and kind of uh, sort of help get some of what you're doing out there to the community I think it's a really really cool thing that you guys are doing oh so for having me on the show Oh, thank you for saying yes. I always have a little bit of a <laughs> when I'm like, hey, come do a community podcast while you're working in film and, you know, doing those 16 hour days. So when you guys say yes, I know you're I very much appreciate the spare time because you sometimes don't have a lot. You being a father, I mean, you're in film and having kids that that's that's occupying. That's, that's the candle at both ends, sir. Well, you picked the perfect window. I mean, the industry is about to start lighting up pretty hard. So now's the time because probably in a week's time, I'm going to be that. Yeah, you'd never hear from me for the next. <laughs> oh, poof, gone. Yeah, exactly. So, um, we brought Doug on to showcase another director from Winnipeg to showcase the work that he's done, but to showcase him specifically and how the film bug bit him, so to speak. So, I've said it before, I'll say it again. I'm sure I'm going to say it thirty thousand more times until this podcast is done. We like to start at the beginning because it makes the most sense. So, when did the film bug bite Doug? Well, you got to go back to when I was probably uh, oh, very young. Um, I've always had um, an appreciation for the arts. Um, I was always drawing. I was always trying to do pictures. Um, I got into photography kind of in grade nine, you know, and, you know, just always watched movies. You know, it was it was just something I was attracted to, the storytelling, a, a way to escape. And even as a young teen, I just I loved being, you know, trapped by the TV and getting to forget about the outside world for a bit and just be locked in somebody else's dream for a bit. And it's it's uh, it's in high school. I, you know, I did art. I did visual art and painting and drawing. And I was I was OK. Uh, then I took uh, then I took a photography class and a course with a buddy of mine in grade 10. And we were on like the yearbook committee going around shooting like the soccer team and everything. So I loved photography. I loved drawing and stuff like that. But <clears throat> I wasn't excellent at either one of those. <laughs> we uh, and it came true to light when we in grade 11, they took you to the uh, um, the OCA, the Ontario College of Art. Uh, for graphic design and they took you as a tour as a precursor to choosing your career so they would take the high school there and we were walking around the 
hallways and the displays of all the visual and graphic artists. And I was just going, okay, I'm not this good. Like, like, don't kid yourself. You're not, I thought I was going to go into graphic art and become a graphic artist or some design. And I was like, you are not this good. Be honest with yourself. Even with the training, you're not going to get there. Um, and it wasn't until I heard that in grade 12, they were introducing a film course taught by, um, Walter Shane, who's one of the teachers at our high school. And I was like, well, I'm going to take that. And this is back, uh, you're talking like 1989, 1990, I was in grade 12. Uh, and we were taking a film course uh, where our teacher was going to give us a VHS camera. He had v VHS editing machines, like dubbing machines. And uh, we learned the history of film. And then we learned about storytelling. We learned about acting. And he basically, our end of year project was, you need to you we're going to split up into four groups of five uh, it was 20 kids in our class and each group is going to write and direct and act and do all the technical for each of your movies and your your job is to create a 10 minute non-dialogue movie so that you knew how to do storytelling without dialogue do it with imagery do it with music do it with editing um, but you weren't allowed to do dialogue he said i don't want to get into that it's it's just too tough at this stage just learn how to use a camera just learn how to edit learn how to integrate music and sound effects so and at the time you know i was influenced we'll get into my influences in a bit but like i was influenced by you know epic adventure movies of course star wars of course indiana jones's trilogies you know back in those that time that was my bread and butter you know jaws and and, and early on horror movies so i was like i'm gonna write basically an indiana jones spin-off but have a female heroine so i wrote i wrote this thing and my group was like yeah do you you can direct it like no, none of them wanted that chair and i was like well i'll, I'll do it you know? <laughs> so we went out and shot this uh, cool 10-minute film and we ended up winning the film award in grade 12 it's not not it does, it's not as glorious as it sounds but but it it gave me um okay i wasn't good at I wasn't excellent at drawing. I wasn't excellent as an actor. I wasn't excellent at photography, but I was good at collectively putting stories together visually. And uh, that gave me a chance to try it. And once I did it and my peers kind of went, wow, you know, you're, you're pretty good at this. So that, that instant I applied to film schools in Ontario. And uh, I was like, that's it. I'm, I'm going to do movies. I, that's what I want to do. Cause I didn't know at that, 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 that stage until I applied. So that was it. It's uh I love that you just like you found it at a really good time. Nobody really finds what. Hang on. No, Michael's absolutely right. Like a lot of people will spend most of their time trying things and never even find what they're good at. Right. And I think when someone what's the old saying, when someone tells you you're good at something, you have to do it. Like that's yeah. the, that's the rule. Right. Well, it was, and, and quite specifically, I remember it was a learning how to trick the audience with the camera. For instance, I knew I was in love with filmmaking when I realized I had to have my heroine scale like a death-defying cliff edge. And, you know, but we couldn't actually put my friend on a 200-foot cliff drop, which was near where we lived. So we had to like, so I had to learn how do you trick the audience in editing? So I learned... They scaled the wall like this, but it, they were actually on the ground, but it looked like a rock face. And then we did a wide shot of the rock face. And then we did a POV looking down where snow was just drifting off the edge and it cut it together. And it looked like they were on this 200 <laughs> foot drop. Once we figured that out, I was like, oh my God, I love this. You know, like just putting a, a, a just a simple little moment together to freak the audience out. I'm like, this is, this is fun. This is what I'm, I think I'm going to be good at. So 
that's where it started yeah it's make believe right it's it's playing pretend it's and i mean like what what better what more fun thing to do i mean i'm sure i i'm i'm breaching but what more fun thing to do than take a bunch of people and a bunch of ideas and a bunch of things and then trick somebody into being like it looks the same as real life like that's that's a that's a skill and a half. Okay, so you've are you 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 you, you answered another question of mine, um, but I, I'm still going to ask it. So it seems like you had the director's bug early on because you landed in the chair that nobody wanted. That's a blessing in disguise because, like Jimmy said, like you don't know until you you don't know what you don't know. And uh, did you ever do any other departments? Did you move around before you came back to it, or did you just go solely into film school to be like, I want to be a director? No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Well, okay, so after that, I was like, okay, I'm going to apply to these film schools and um, and 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 try this out and try and learn how to be a director right from the get-go. And so I applied to Ryerson, uh, did some research, took their tour. Um, but I, at the time, I didn't actually like what they were pitching because they were saying the first year of Ryerson was all going to be theory and you wouldn't actually touch a camera until second year. And I'm a hands-on learner. You know, I wasn't great at all the math and science grades. I was excellent at arts, but so I was like, I don't want to read books for a year. I, give me a camera. I want to, I want to tangibly put something together. Give me the editing tools. Uh, give me a crew. I, let me just start figuring things out. So, and I applied to Sheridan College and Seneca College. So that was the three. Uh, I got accepted to all three, but Sheridan College was the one I wanted because they they uh, they had an animation department back then and even still now. I think Disney still pulled animators out of Sheridan graduates. So it was world renowned, that college for animation. Uh, it, had a dra- it had a drama course. Uh, so it had theater students in one wing. So in a way it was like a no brainer for me. I thought they let you touch gear right away uh i'm in and funny enough on top of the application process you had to do something else as part of your application and what it was was their theme that year was bicycles and you had to do anything you could do a commercial on bicycles you could do a how-to you could do a short documentary you could do whatever just show us your what you want to try while you're at the school show us what tools you have and at the time i was a big mountain biker like racing and mountain bikes and me and my buddies is all we did gravel pits and race through blue mountain and a whole bunch of places in ontario so i was a big cyclist so i was like are you kidding me so i went out with my camera uh with my high school buddies and we shot these, these amazing shots with my buddies doing cool tricks and climbs and descends yeah. and i put it to the theme of top gun's anthem and i cut <laughs> it all together and even today it's just it's so cool to watch because it's so 90s retro and uh, it's only three minutes long but but, uh, you know, that was part of my entry application. And once I got in, I was like, okay, now, now what do we do? Yeah, and I got to ask you before we move on, did you have the famous high five in your movie? <laughs> no, that was something I did not want to do. <laughs> we, did a, we did it something else, yeah. <laughs> was there we, didn't do, we didn't want to do the volleyball high five. <laughs> if you know what I mean. I totally know what you mean. I was like, was there a shirtless volleyball break in the middle of all the action too? <laughs> well, we were showing how truly Canadian we were because I shot it in March and it was still melting snow. So we were out there mountain biking in snow and mud and dirt and just kind of like, there ain't no shirtless opportunities here. So. Totally, unless you're unless you're part of the club. <laughs> Shit. Well, and the other thing I should mention before I get into the college years is that I was always the kid with the video camera in high school. 
because the 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 library and because of my film prof uh, said, you know, use the cameras anytime you want, sign them out. So I was the guy like filming everything, Battle of the Bands. I was shooting talent shows. I was shooting graduations. I was making side hustles, like paying parents or parents were giving me 10 bucks a VHS tape for copies of their kids' graduations. So I, I have all and my buddies, my old high school buddies are going to have a rude awakening. I still have. And I just finished transferring old high school footage of us being drunk. I would take the camera home to our drunk parties. <laughs> I'm going to surprise them next year with an edited, like, half an hour feature at of all of us partying in high school. And they're going to lose their minds. Oh. So I was always the kid with the camera. And that's sort of where I got uh, my bug, too, was because I got to use it so much. So. You remind me, did you ever see Exit Through the Gift Shop? It's the uh, documentary about Banksy. It's the most accurate one, but it's a story. Anyways, Terry, next time you watch it, you'll you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Do watch it. But this guy doesn't go anywhere without a video camera. Anywhere. And and it's because he never went anywhere without one that he has all this stuff. So I think that's super fucking cool that you were like, I'm just going to most intimate moments. And now you can give like you can give somebody some nostalgia. And that's pretty impressive. Yeah. I've got hours of footage to put, cut together and I'm going to, I'm going to spend over the next year in between all of my projects to, to do that. And hopefully there'll be a Christmas present for my old high school friends that I haven't seen in years. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the best gift shopper who's ever graced our show um, is Doug Mitchell. <laughs> you are the best gift shopper on the planet to give somebody a Christmas <laughs> present. It's the most genuine memorable gift you could possibly get. I want you to shop for me anyways. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, so college years, you're going through school. So was there, so it was, it was always directing because of the camera. I mean, and because of the, because you're constantly looking through a camera, I mean, it's hard to want to, I mean, it would be hard to be like, well, it's going into costume or let's go into grip or lighting, right? Like if you're playing with the thing that captures the moment, so it's going to rub off on you for lack of a, a better term, um, films, TV, a lot of creative process that goes into this, um, sometimes most dramatically in the editing process now that or actually no i don't want to ask that yet sorry i'm out of order here guys uh, <laughs> uh, let's 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 step back here here's the question i wanted to ask okay i often wonder why anybody would want to direct this is what i wanted to know from you sitting there watching people who directed before you are constantly being bamboozled with a bunch of questions so knowing that that's what you're watching and learning how what what, what is it about you that loves that process Well, I came up, you know, I came up through uh, the film industry uh, through the assistant director chain. So I'm not sure how much you know about that side of the world, but the, the assistant directing team is uh, in charge of sort of uh, scheduling the movie, breaking down the scripts, uh, running all the meetings with all the different departments. Uh, and you work with the director and the producers on how to hone in and, and logistically organize each shooting day you know, till it's uh, manageable within our budget and time frame, and using experience you've had in the past to say that kind of a sequence would take X amount of time with that kind of gear, and you know, and, and you always go back and forth with the script. So I, that's how I started. I worked as a trainee. It became a third AD, a second, and eventually uh, became a first, uh, which is the the person that runs the floor. They're the they're the voice you hear mostly on a set, calling out all the cues, calling out all the roles, and, and stuff like that. So. I'm, I was used from a, used to it from a very early on in my that everybody comes to the ADs, the assistant directors, for 
questions about everything because we have to organize everybody and, and get them to come into a place to fit the director's vision. So because I was so used to that, when I got to directing, when I actually got to direct dramatic TV or, you know, feature, you know, I'm, I'm kind of used to it. And, and it became a, a more of a fun collaborative thing. It can get intense at times, obviously, sure. like you yeah. get asked hundreds of questions a day. So it is a lot. But if you went from nothing to that, you would probably be overwhelmed and not not fit that. But because I kind of gradually it increased through my career and through my expertise, it became a normal uh, collaboration fit that I actually thrive from. And, and then when I got to the directing thing, it was even more fun because it was even more creative and less logistical. It was kind of talking with the costume designers and the production designers about the creative aspects instead of just the logistics. I'm really glad that you, you brought that up because that's kind of what I was segueing into. So thank you for taking the, the lead on that. And I think that like that, I love that that's how it happened because you just uh, you just accumulated getting used to it. And eventually like it's because I guess somebody who wants to jump right into it right off the hop, which it I've I read up on second unit, even third unit, depending on the size of the film, if I'm not mistaken, like the bigger the film gets, the more units you want to involve because it's just that it's huge. Right. Like you see yeah. the third unit on a Marvel film and you're like, holy mo!" And I and I read into it and it seems to me and this is just a layman speaking here, but you guys are in charge of sewing the movie together. So the seamlessness of a movie in your department, like there's the directors doing the big scenes and calling for all the stuff, but it's your job to organize the movie. So it's got the continuity and in, in story that you want to tell. So you're like the spine you might say of making the movie bridge together. Um, yeah. Like I yeah. said, layman. <laughs> no, that's, that's, uh, you know, it's pretty accurate. I mean, the first AD is the, you know, is the person that has to make sure that all the right pieces are talking to each other too cohesively, you know, cause you'll meet directors that are actually quite soft spoken that aren't as, you know, out extroverted as maybe I am. Right. And so I have to listen to them and, and talk to them and, hold meetings with them and then uh, understand what they're after and then get all the right people talking so that we can get their vision out there it's 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 um it's a communication art really you know because you have so many different personalities to work with you could have an aggressive person on one thing that's really out there and you have to learn how to work with that person to still get their vision out there to everybody or i mean just personalities are so so unique and different that you have to know how to work with those with all different types of people and that's that's a that's a personality trait that it's it is hard to teach because there are some people that are just set in their ways they're not going to budge i'm not going to adjust my ways to work with them well then you're, you wouldn't make it in that position in my opinion you know you, you need to be someone that is a little versatile in your workflow so that you can adjust to the the other people to the directors or the producers or the you know and you need to kind of work with everybody a little bit so i uh yeah no i i'm sorry i was just caught up in what you were saying but yeah it is because like a gig it, it just it changes every time it's not the same you know, I mean, unless you're like tim burton and you always call on johnny depp or martin scorsese <laughs> calling on leo right like you know yeah, yeah. but that's a, that's a that's a very unique thing where yeah you're gonna go from feature film to tv to so your your style of directing is changing your pacing is changing your yeah. your, the, your crew size might be changing depending on how small the film is or the team oh sure vice versa so you got to adapt you got to be a russian fucking gymnast 
inside sometimes and be like, all right, roundabout, switch it up, figure this out, new set, new life, new rules. Okay, I, I, okay, so that answers my question because sitting from over here, and like I said to Jimmy before we started recording, everything I know about life comes from TV and movies until Shauna corrects me, which is my lovely wife. And I'll be like, that's true. And she's like, that doesn't happen in real life. And I'm like, but it happened on Ocean's Eleven. Anyway, when in fact here um, is hearing everything from the friends I have in film and and being on the side of you guys, I'm I would I would explode when three people at my job come to me all at the same time. I just start to have this little fucking internal temper tantrum. So I think it's a superpower to sit there and be like, all right, each department launch your mission, give them directives, have everything lined up for. 30 seconds of the perfect shot yeah 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 it's 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 super fun i gotta tell you it's uh when it when it when it works man you just sit back and you just look at everyone you go guys we we pulled that off like it like that was a big deal (laughs) you know um because you're right all the different projects i've worked on it can range from you know like burden of truth we had a crew of 75 people you know um manageable fairly tight nice and small uh whatever but I've also been on big features where you have 220 people and you know, it's, it, there's a huge, and then there's of course short films and documentaries where they're much smaller, right? Like 15, 12 people sometimes um, or commercial shoots where it's like 30, you know, so, or it depends on the commercial, but you know, it's, it, it is a very versatile, um, you know, industry where you have many different things to kind of adjust to. So, and I, you know, when I started, I had the, I didn't know it at the time. I was very lucky and very fortunate that when I came out of college and I, uh, maybe I'll backtrack in a bit. Yeah, yeah, no. Basically, when I got into the industry, I was, uh, you know, plucked out by someone who knew, said, oh, yeah, you should come and be my office PA and and uh, work for me. And I got on this amazing, really, you know, high budget series called La Femme Nikita in Toronto. Jesus. And, um, that was that was 1996 uh, i got that yeah who was and the, the, there's who was in that i i remember the show i just don't oh, know. uh peter wilson was the lead yes. yeah right? and roy dupuy was the other male lead and then there's like eugene glazer and a bunch of the other ensemble cast but but you know that was an eight month 22 episode one hour dramatic series and so i was employed for eight months a year Jeez, and yeah. i didn't know this at the time but i was like Oh, you want to come on the series? It's long. It's eight months. I'm like, sure. I'm not doing anything. And I was like, I didn't realize I was getting the opportunity of a lifetime because what ended up happening, that show went for four seasons. Yeah. So I went from a trainee assistant director in the first season. I upgraded to a third AD in the second season. I stayed as a third and got tons of set experience, learned how to set extras, worked with 12 different directors, learning how to do shots with, we had we had all the toys. We had crane shots. We had a second unit running full-time, uh, like two days a week. Um, it was all like, you know, like SWAT teams and gunfire and explosions and, you know, tanks and really high-end cars and international spy stuff and uh, cool props that were being designed and made just specifically for the show. So it was like, holy crap, I'm getting all this experience for my first four years in the industry. Unlike if someone would start today, there's no guarantee of that anymore. Like there's no, everyone's fighting for the next like five-week gig. And I, I didn't realize at the time how lucky I was. I had four years lined up of work on that show, as long as I, you know, 
showed up every day and actually kept uh, <laughs> working my ass off. But, uh, but that gave me my first four years. And by that time I was a second AD by the end of that four years. And uh, from there I was off and running. So what I'm trying to get at is that I was very fortunate uh, to have the opportunity to work on a you know bigger budget show that taught me a lot of bigger tricks early on in my career. Uh, and I learned from some of the best in the industry, the best production manager, producer, uh, and the directors that I got to watch work, you know, for four years yeah. and learn, learn what their styles are, learn how they communicated to actors. I was basically studying for my opportunity when I got to direct. Yeah, I was making notes every night going, okay, I'd like to, okay, write that down. That's it, you know, and that was like, that was my education because quite honestly, when I went to film school, you know, um, no disrespect because it was an amazing time, but it taught me how to be a broke independent filmmaker. It didn't teach me about the union world. It didn't teach me about that you could join the Directors Guild of Canada and actually create a, a logistical career. They, It was preparing you to be an independent filmmaker, and that's great. But I also didn't see me succeeding in a career that way, so I chose... Yeah going to the union world and, and go up the steps so I could learn the craft from many different points of view. And then by the time I got my shot, I would have the tools and be prepared enough to succeed and, and continue on. So that was sort of my mentality going through all that. That's, that's what, like, and to be young and, and to catch that, like I would have just been so dumbfounded. I'd have been like, how am I here? Oh, what's going on? <laughs> You know, and like, well, don't get me wrong. I, I was like that most of the time too, don't get me <laughs> but it's seizing the opportunity and just knowing like, dude, like, yeah, it just felt like there was someone on my shoulder going, dude, you know, the opportunity you're getting right now, like, don't waste this. Yeah. You know, like, don't, don't screw this up because you, you could turn this into something if you pay attention. Yeah. That's why you're so good today, man. <laughs> you're inspiring to all of us broke artists. <laughs> well it's it's a it's a tough industry isn't it like it's it's cruel um it's fickle and it's unpredictable and to survive in in uh, in any creative industry you know you gotta have a tough tough heart tough skin you know and and just to want to kind of continue on even though you get beat down it's it's you gotta have something else inside you that that can that can kind of swim past that and say i'm not gonna let that beat me i'm not gonna let that uh, tear me down because I know that I'm I'm here for something better. I'm here for something interesting and creative, and I want to have a chance to show that. So, it's it's interesting that the hero's journey story arc is actually every film professional's career: <laughs> <laughs> perseverance, overcoming, you know, yeah. deep inside, finding a way to break through, and winning in the end. Like that's a film career because every it's it's almost like everything in film essentially. You have to start at the bottom because it's about being known for your craft and then eventually latching onto the right situations and taking advantage of the right opportunities like you did and, and then slowly but surely working your way up to where everybody's getting noticed because you can't you can't put spotlight everywhere like that then though it would mean nothing, right? So yeah. but at the same time, I mean, yeah, you're you're right. Like but I mean, isn't life cruel and fickle and hard? <laughs> exactly. You? you know interpreting life on film so technically it's like whatever ah well i'm i'm no psychologist um now i'm gonna ask the question i meant to not ask earlier and i'm gonna ask it better than i tried to ask it before um sure. uh, as a director um are you heavy in the editing process or are you done when you're done because you you know you it, some people are like a gig is a gig and i'm up 
or do you want to be a part of post-production as much as you were on set? Well, okay. Well, there's a, a few things. I can only speak to uh, television series edit editing yeah. and feature film editing. Um, in television series, you uh, you do edit. It's part of your contract when you are hired that you uh, a not only have to deliver the shooting material. Um, you know, you have to sign a contract that says I will bring everything in on schedule, on time. Uh, I will shoot the story that is in the script. Um, but you also are guaranteed X amount of editing days with your editor. Um, so you will go and edit and you do what's called a director's cut. And in television series, because there are creative producers and showrunners that are the boss and they're the ones that overlook, you know, all of the episodes. So there is a season arc that ties in and they control the writer's room. Once I hand over my director's cut after six days or whatever it ends up being, um, I'm kind of done at that point. So what happens after I hand that in is now the producers watch it and the producers do what's called a producer's cut. And because there will be things I may not know about what the other directors have shot or developed in their episodes, they're going to go, oh, yeah, but the, we met, we rewrote that scene in episode seven. That affects something that Doug's episode says here, so we got to just trim that line out. Okay. So there are always little massages that have to happen that can only really come from the showrunners that are on the show the entire time. I'm only there for two episodes out of the eight, right? So especially in the post process. And then once the producers do their cut, they do then they do the final mix, uh, the sound effects, the ADR, the looping for additional lines with the actors, and they put it through the polish process that I don't get to be part of. It just sometimes it's, they'll recut a scene of mine to their liking and you know, and that's their prerogative and they do it and uh, and that's it. In features, it's way more fun. Because you, get, because you get to do you get to sit there with your editor for like it can be up to a month right when you're just in the edit room and you do your rough cut uh you still have to send it away to your network whoever it is if it's hallmark or Marvista entertainment or whatever uh and they make their notes and then you got to adjust to their notes because they're your boss so you you and the editor will go through the you know 100 notes that they have that you have to make some adjustments <laughs> yep uh but then once the picture is locked this is my favorite favorite part of filmmaking is well it's become part of my favorite thing is just getting to do the music mix like do the music scoring oh, with yeah. your composer you get to watch the rough cut and you say i want to have music come in here and you want to i want to feel this that we didn't quite get out of the actor but if you put a little something there all of a sudden the audience is going to go oh my god or <laughs> and then you get to put in like the sound effects and then and then the color time, then you go with the color colorist and you go and you make sure they make sure the film's got a look with the, you and your DP will go in and do the color timing and make sure it's got a beautiful, you know, concentric look that everything is, you know, gorgeous uh, and the way that, you know, that you want it to look. And then that final mix, you know, when you just you do everything, just the final touches on everything and you sit there and you watch it and you make your final adjustments and you go, oh, my God, like that it's done oh my god like it, it is really magical because sometimes you can cut a you can shoot a scene one way and you can edit it in a whole other way to give it a completely different tone right you cut away before the actor smiles you know but they actually smile like hey you cut away before the actor smiles now the intent of that scene and the opposing actor wow she didn't really like what he said i'm like no but when we shot it she smiled he said what <laughs> yeah put it in cut cut it back and now it changes the tone of the scene so editing has an miraculous ability to change things 
uh, even at, even if like they say the producers called and said, you know what, she's not coming off as bubbly as we hoped in the performance on the day of shooting. Is there anything you can do to kind of find that? I said, okay, give me a, give me a sec with the editor. We'll call you back. And we would dig through other takes and we think it's like, we can make her a little more bubbly by cutting away from her earlier, cut to the guy and we can ADR in her laughing or something. So there's this, this malleable opportunity in editing that, that, can change things or bring it to life even more than you ever imagined. So uh, things are, are an evolutionary change uh, through the script, through the shooting and editing. And sometimes you won't even realize the final product in its entirety until you get into the editing room. And that's, that's sometimes the movie magic that is just wonderful to watch. That's so fucking poetic, eh, Jimmy? <laughs> you know, man, I'm just lost in his words when he speaks. I know. Like it's, I, I was, I was, I wanted like, you, you're just throwing nuggets at me, man. I love it because I, I really wanted to know how TV and how film, I mean, you, from, from my side of the couch, you can see how it's produced and whatever. And you know, there's a writer's room and you know, there's a show, but you don't know what they do beyond Googling shit on the net. And that's not fun after a while. So like I, I, I was like, it, it almost seems like, you know, with a film being one and done, you can put all you all you can into it and play with it. Like you said, is malleable. But with TV, because you're arcing, right? You have a start and a finish, and there's a there's a projection there. It wouldn't. It doesn't sound as much fun because it sounds almost contractual versus creative. Uh, in which way? Sorry, it's like with TV, the way you were describing. Yeah, it with, is, and it and it is, and it's 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 so that and and for a good reason. It's it's so that the the showrunner who is the you know ultimately the creator of the stories that go into the episode that showrunner you know directs the writers room okay we're going to put up all our idea cards on each episode up on the wall and we're going to say you know Doug needs to fall off a cliff in this and and suffer a break and you know and they go through all the story points but one showrunner needs to keep an eye on all six writers and make sure that they're not going off on a tangent that the other episodes can't lay the groundwork for so the, it's sort of like a triangle that way and the creative producers are up there with the showrunner and they, they need to make sure that in our case with like burden of truth we need to they need to make sure that all eight episodes have a, you know a season arc or a character arcs that go through it that are cohesive and you really only you really need one person or two people in charge of that because as a TV director on series, you are contracted for two episodes. So in our case, there's four directors, two episodes each make the eight episodes. So, you know, four different directors have four different visions, but you kind of have to shoot it in the style of the show and what the producers up top are known for. Like, that's why we're in season four. We've, you know, we created a look, we created a, a, a story arc, and you can't go off on a tangent and start shooting Fincher style on Burden of Truth, you know? Like, <laughs> you can't do that. You got to keep it within. And, and, the, and meetings with the showrunners in that will tell you, this is our style. We'd like you to cater to how we shoot things. You're not, you're not, you're not uh, shoehorned into anything. Yeah. You're just you're given a guide track, basically. And you're like, yeah. okay, I, get, I see your show's look, and, and you go for it. Yeah, I, 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 I went a little dark there on negative on it. But yeah, no, it's just it's 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 uh, and because it's I would imagine like it's compressed, right? Like you can do a film, you can go on set for a couple months, do it and then like have three or four months in the editing room where you're trying to get to the next season and everybody's trying to get off projects onto the next project. So it just seems a little bit more 
Like it, it, it's got a fact. That, that, and that's also the other way. It's just so that the directors aren't tied up for three months uh, just to do a recap for a couple of days on an episode. It, it helps the rotation of getting everybody, you know, work to it. I don't think that that is written anywhere, but that's a, that's sort of like an industry. It's just effective, right? It keeps everybody moving and keeps the shows going. So I would really love it though. Like, <laughs> like, I mean, it's a lot of money, so you can't do it, but wouldn't it be fun to be like, all right, we're going to do Nolan on this episode. We're going to do Fincher <laughs> on this episode. We're going to do Terrence Malick on this episode. We're going to do some Spielberg, some Lucas. Uh, we're going to do some Hitchcock. We're going to, we're going to pay homage to Hitchcock. Like just fucking go off the, like WandaVision. <laughs> yeah. It's almost like American Horror Story, where every season was yeah. its own animal, right? It's like you know, kind of interesting that way. That was fun that they they built that into it. Um, we're we're teeter tottering very close to all of the work you've done, so let's let's just uh, I want we'll move into that now. I do want to find out one thing though, uh, and this this is just my curiosity because I'm a little uh, uh, superstitious myself. But do you have any like traditions or? or or requirements that you know when you get on set and get off set like when you start a production and end a production is there any little quirky thing that you do that you know not not so much quirky i just um i just know like a, like right before we go to camera um it's <laughs> this is funny i've never really said this out loud i kind of give myself a little pep talk nice um on the drive-in on day one of shooting because like I am so excited to get shooting that, uh, you know, I, I kind of can't wait to get on the floor. That's where I thrive. That's where I've always been comfortable at a certain point. I hate prep. I'm just like, screw it. Let's just hit the floor and start shooting. But I kind of give myself a little pep talk and try and remind myself that in the stress of making these movies, because it always gets stressful. Remember to just breathe for 10 seconds and remember what you're doing and how, how great this opportunity is to be here and just and even if you find yourself midday and it's really stressful if you just all you need to do is step away for 30 seconds go breathe and come back and you will and you just have a better thing and then what i do is i make sure i thank every, uh, the crew at the end of the day you know you, you don't just wait till the end of the movie i try and make a point to hit the key department heads or anybody as i'm leaving set uh because they really just put a lot of blood sweat and tears in the day and i think it's really my routine is really just to try and show as much appreciation to everybody that that just worked their asses off on the day um yeah, that, but I, and the only other quirky thing that was funny that happened when i when i got my first directing gig it was less than kind that I got the opportunity. Um, the office staff, you you would know her, Tam uh, Tamara Mouthy. Oh, I love she, Tamara. She, she was like this, oh, Doug's going to get to direct. Are you going to have any, like, rider requests in your contract <laughs> that we have to cater? Are you going to ask for your own trailer? Um, and I said, I said, you know what, Tamara, I do. You know what I'm going to put in my rider? I want a bowl of green M&Ms at the monitors when I show up at the <laughs> <laughs> and so the whole office staff laughed at me and they were like, oh, my God, of course you would say that. They were so sweet that on day one, they actually bought like eight bags of M&Ms, sorted out all the green ones and wow. gave me this perfect little white bowl of green M&Ms on day one. <laughs> oh. And it just warmed my heart. You know, it was like, you guys are the best. Thanks very much. <laughs> <laughs> That's so odd. Tamara, you're the shit. You know that. I know. Tamara's, awesome. Tamara's backed me since day one. She's also the reason that me and my wife are together. Oh wow! Yeah, that she's she's everybody's godmother. She's very godmother, totally, right? Like totally. godmother to all of us, and everybody in film in Winnipeg. I've, I don't think, 
Yeah. Oh, whatever. We won't get into that. Um, <laughs> we're, we're flirting with work here. I don't want to talk about my day job. I'm, uh, it's done. <laughs> but let's talk about your work, Doug. Um, so less than kind. Jimmy, did you ever see less than kind? Unfortunately, I have not seen less than kind. Okay. Um, I, I think I was, um, I think I may have been three or four years old. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, now you're dating me. <laughs> yeah, me too. I feel, I feel the cops are going to knock him. No, I'm kidding. Um, so, uh, less than kind of you said is where you, you started to get to direct. Uh, Jimmy, just for some backdrop here, it is a story about a Jewish family who owns a driving school in Winnipeg, and it was on HBO for four seasons, Doug? Four seasons? Um, and its backdrop is Winnipeg. It takes place in Winnipeg. And Maury Chaikin... Chokin? Chaikin? Chaikin, yeah. Chaikin. Oh, man, I'm two for two. Um, he uh, dances with wolves. Um, this, uh, mostly theater, but he was like a New York winnipeg hybrid he lived in new york yeah. for a bit lived here as well too mom's from here anyways he's this genius theater dramatic actor and doug got to work with him so i'm just going to start there what's it like working with his style he's just he just <laughs> looked so much fun well i i started that show as the first ad on season one okay so i so i got to know everybody and know the show and know the actors and i was the first assistant director uh, or one of them. I think Richard Duffy was the other one that we were rotating the blocks. Um, so I got to know the showrunners and the producers and the, the directors of that season. Uh, then season one ended. Um, we were waiting to hear if we were going to get a season two. And I, I kid you not, uh, Mark McKinney from Kids in the Hall, if you're an old, old fan of those guys, he was our showrunner, right? Uh, him and the two other creators, Chris uh, Shays Green and Marvin Kaye, called me on Christmas Eve no joke and they were like hey what are you doing i'm like what are you doing calling i mean it's great to hear your voices i've been talking in a few months but what's up well we we want to know if you'd be interested in directing an episode in season two coming next summer i was like are you uh, are you kidding kidding me so they that was like my gift it was my first time getting to an offer to direct a network tv dr dramatic comedy uh from these guys and um so that was like Okay, so that's amazing. I'm like, are you kidding? So I still got the first AD a few blocks of the show, and then I would direct an episode. So I still got to work on the whole season two. Yeah, yeah. So working with Maury, of course, you know, like the other actors, um, you know, very approachable, very uh, easy to talk to a little oh, bit. Maury's me. a little more, Maury's a little bit more method in some ways, but I don't think he would have called it that. I think he just, he's his own person, and he's not very chatty you know like he's not someone that just cut hey so how was your weekend he, he's not that guy um but i've had my nice moments with him and they are few but very special moments with him and my my first time directing with him i i was so nervous that day because i'm like oh my god it's my first day actually directing maury and I thought, what am I going to tell Maury Chaikin? I mean, wh what direction could I offer as a, as a relatively new director, even though I've been in the industry for 18 years? This is what I'm looking for. This is what like, I'm looking for. So anyway, we were shooting a scene in the studio. Uh, it was a scene where he, got, he, you know, he was hospitalized and his eldest son comes in the hospital room with, a, with an old man scooter to say, Dad, look what we got here. Right? <laughs> anyway, so we did the master shot. And then I we had another camera on him as his close-up 
and I he usually you just let him go because he gives you gold no matter what. You give him three takes, you know, give you something different every time, and it's amazing. But I was like, there's one there was one thing I wanted him to try just to offset something Wendell was doing, his on camera wife, and and I was like so nervous to go up to him, and he just deadpan in the in the hospital bed. I walked up to him and I said you know, hey, Maury, I just, if you wouldn't mind, you know, when, when your son says this line, can you just throw your head over to your wife and just give her a little look at that right after that line? Just, it'll tie something in I'm doing with the other camera. And he just looked at me like, and didn't say a word, almost like, who the F are you? Now, he it, it he didn't say that. It just, he, he didn't acknowledge my request. So I thought, I, I said, okay, Maury, it's okay. You don't have to. I just thought I'd throw it out there. Okay, all right, let's roll, guys. Let's roll. And then we rolled. And I'm watching the take. And he does the direction I asked for. And we cut. And he looked at me and just winked. That's it. And, and, and it was it was the confidence boost I kind of needed. to. And I was like, after that moment, I was fine. Like, I was, okay. I, I It's like he was so kind to do that for me because he knew I was nervous and he knew that just that little thing would help me calm down and then I could do my job. And it's because, you know, big actors like that. And, you know, when you're a new director or something, you do think about what, sure. am I, what can I offer them, you know? So it was cool. I love that. Jimmy, did you, have you seen Dances with Wolves, Jimmy? Uh, not in a long time. No. Okay. Do you remember when, like, and you may not, but it's like the scene when he wants to get a new posting <laughs> he goes to see the guy and he stands up and he's like, I've pissed my pants and there's not a thing anyone can do about it. That's Maury Chaykin. Oh, my yeah. God. My favorite line. I have said that line over and over, over the years. I've just pissed my pants. There's nothing anyone can do about it. Um, yeah, you know, you know, God bless him. He passed away, uh, you know, in between season uh, three and four there. But he was he was a real gem. And uh, the cast, the whole ensemble cast was just you know, an incredible family. And we're still, we still, we still kind of, there's some of the crew, we still have an annual hangout. That was such a family type show that it, it touched all of us. So It was, I was, I, I wrote it in the notes for Doug that I worked the bar. They filmed Wendell and her sister going to for drinks and whatnot was peasant cookery. And I worked oh, there. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. And they'd leave their call sheets behind and I'd be like, look, I have a call sheet. <laughs> and like, <laughs> Lose my shit that I had some artifact from a show that I liked. Cause it's, it's it's a li it's it's not dark comedy, but it's it's almost it's a little dramedy in some ways. Would that? Yeah, and I think it's a it was a little ahead of its time. I mean, honestly, it's it's just comedic gold. It's so funny, oh. and because we had the ability to not not hide Winnipeg anymore. A lot of movies you come they come to shoot here, they treat it as Chicago or whatever Detroit. Uh, but this was like, no, show Winnipeg. Go ahead, we're writing about Winnipeg, so it, that. You know, the writing was just gold and it was super funny and it still is like I it holds up today. I still not just because of my nostalgia to the show. It's, it was legit, legitimately good writing and great acting, great yeah. timing and chemistry. I mean, it was awesome. And it's HBO. It's got the seal of approval. Once HBO puts their their three big letters on it with that sound. I mean, and and, and, and you're right. It It's. I I watched it a year ago and I was just sitting on the couch just belly laughing like just the the, the <laughs> siphoning of gas because the driving school like it's all about the family's driving school going under and they're trying to re maintain this successful front and everything's going to shit and 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 he mentions the ensemble cast is it easy is it is it like 
farting through silk as my grandpa used to say when it, when you have such a fantastic ensemble cast they know each other they're 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 jiving with each other and everything's lining up you know and everything's working is that is it is that just more fun as a director or does that kind oh, yeah. of throw you off no it's great i mean that's that's i think that's where a lot of the comedic gold came from is just the chemistry between everybody we knew from the first day of shooting that this was going to be something because they all it's not that it's not necessarily that they all got along it's it, it's not about you know being personable it was about how their characters bonded in the scenes and once we saw some of that happening we were all just like did that just happen like it's and and what's funny is as a crew member watching and you have to be quiet right but sometimes you want to laugh out you want to belly laugh during a take and it's, yeah and some, sometimes that happened in fact our showrunner was classic mark mckinney was classic for watching at the monitors and going <laughs> cut <laughs> mark sorry guys sorry sorry <laughs> so um it just the chemistry of the cast was just wonderful and uh getting to know them over the years has been a, a real special treat and it's it there are very few you know there are very few shows that uh any anybody that works in the film industry can say feels like family less than like la femme nikita back in the 90s for me my first four-year show that was a family family thing like it felt like family when we when that show was shut down that was a crusher uh, same with Less Than Kind. When that show was done, that was a crusher because we all bonded. And Burden of Truth is is the same. It's it was four years of just incredible bonding with very special people. And you know the, those three shows to me are like my my family shows over the over the career. So it comes through, man. Like it's it is such a it it is a, it the whole family can sit down and watch Less Than Kind and all chuckle and laugh and and enjoy it. So I'll I have it. Like I I bought it, Jimmy. So I'll. Uh, I'll I'll get it over to you. Please do. Yeah, come over. We'll watch it one day when COVID breaks. Right uh, on. <laughs> so, uh, moving on, uh, I'm gonna take the uh, passenger seat for a second here because next on the list is a movie about a little doll, and Jimmy has an absolute love for horror movies. So Jimmy, I'm just going to hand it over to you for a second, and we can we can let you steer the ship into Chucky because Doug got to work on Chucky here in Winnipeg, and God damn it, you love that doll. <laughs> you know, like if I'm gonna if I'm gonna ask anything, I think I'll I'll start with the question that we asked um, friend of the show Doug Morrow. Um, oh, Dougie. <laughs> is um so is Jennifer Tilly as wonderful as I assume she is? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh. Yep. Absolutely. You know, she's, that she's, just uh, warms my heart. Yeah, she was awesome. I mean, she, she didn't come for the whole shoot. We would uh, we d deliberately scheduled her for, I think, I don't know, I think three or four or five days, something like that, max, right? And she'd come in and, and do her thing. But she is lovely. She is a lovely woman. She's so talented. She's she's beautiful. She's just, you know, she doesn't <laughs> age, that woman, right? And she's just, uh, she was wonderful to work with. Absolutely. Oh. I, that warms my heart, and I know it warms the hearts of everybody listening as well. <laughs> um, uh, well oh, go ahead, Jimmy. Sorry, I'll shut up. Oh, sure. You know, just because um, I, I believe you worked on Colton Curse, right? Yeah, two, two of the feature films were uh, shot here, uh, I think two years apart, three years apart. Right. Uh, and I love these movies because it just, it absolutely shows Don Mancini's 
uh, growth from, especially after Seed, which I love personally. I enjoyed Seed of Chucky very much. Um, but I love to see his growth in Cold and Curse. Like, it's unbelievable just to watch that. So what was it like to be around that at the time and watching him grow and become, a, a, frankly, an excellent director that I love? Yeah, I mean, I got to, I, hats off because he, you know, he didn't direct a ton before this, you know, he was the writer, he was the producer in that, but the, the, the whole hands-on directing really kicked in here for, for um, uh, Curse there uh, when he first brought the first movie here to Winnipeg. And he is just one of the most admirable filmmakers I've had the honor to work with. Uh, he truly loves what he does and he's like a little kid uh in his passion in in every approach of doing it um and he really trusts trusted all of us i was the first ad on it and i did some second unit directing for the for the features but uh but he really trusted me and he trusted mike marshall and craig sandels who were the director of photography and the production designer uh to really help him figure out how we're going to do this because originally you know, uh, shooting some of the old movies, they used to do, you know, raised sets with puppeteers underneath the floor and stuff for the doll. And, you know, we had to figure out a way to shoot shoot a Chucky movie without that because we just didn't have the money and the time to build that kind of a set. We had to do something different. So he worked for months before coming to Winnipeg, shot listing it with a storyboard artist. So when he came to Winnipeg, he already had like, I don't know, at least 50% of the movie visually figured out. And from that, we could help him shape everything else. Um, so he's just just wonderful to talk to. And he's so kind. And, and he listens to everybody's uh, opinions and collaborates well. And just somebody you would you love making a movie with because he's that, he's that kind of guy. Oh, again, that just warms my heart and makes me so happy to hear. <laughs> well and um, he know you know and he knows the doll he knows how to how to shoot it he he's been around it for how, how many 25 years 30 years right. so he he knows what his puppeteer guys can do he's been working with them since the beginning uh that originally created them so uh it was it, and i had never worked with puppets before and they're a bitch let me tell you <laughs> Like it was awesome working on that movie, but it logistically it was a bitch. You know? <laughs> so, like you know, imagine a little you know thirty-one inch doll is on on set and there's puppeteers with rods, and okay, all right, we want to shoot the doll in front of the bed, doing this with the knife. Okay, great. So you need three puppeteers underneath with the rods. You need the speaking puppeteer at the computer making the mouth move. And you need every one of these three puppeteers lying on the floor need their own little monitor. Okay, well, now we have to get them a grip stand with a monitor. Now they got to move it there. We're going to put the camera. Well, the camera sees two of the knees of the puppeteers. Okay, we'll move the, move the camera down so it shoots up. Well, now we're seeing the lighting that Mike Marshall just put in. Crap! Turn the doll 90 degrees to the right. Maybe we'll cheat it over here. Like, every adjustment you made was a bitch <laughs> to get it right. But when you would pull off a shot and the puppet would come to life and the lighting and the lightning would kick in and the, it just, you just sat there and went, holy crap. And it would take a long time to shoot a movie with a puppet. It's, it's, it's more time than shooting animals and kids. It's, it's insane, but it's, it is uh, one of the coolest feelings when you finish a Chucky movie and go, man, we did that. Wow. It's cool. <laughs> you know? So, and it was right fun. On. It made us feel like kids sometimes. I got to tell you. Oh, that you know, <laughs> just talking about the puppet and how 
as you called it, a bitch to work with. I just, were there any points, like how many, how many different versions do you think they had of the Chucky doll on set at one time? Oh God. Okay. Well, I remember the first time meeting the doll. I remember, like, because Don had cut, flown up to Winnipeg to do the scouting and do all the preliminaries, and we're like, when are the puppeteers coming? And then when they came, you know, of course, they bring all their animatronics and all their different sets of that. So we were out scouting around North Winnipeg, and uh, I got the memo that the puppeteers had just landed in Winnipeg, and they're now getting all their stuff to the studio and unpacking and setting up their workshop in the studio. And I kept going, oh, I can't wait to get back so I can go meet the doll, and and I remember that by the time we got back, everyone had to race up for a meeting. But I was like, I'm going to go in and see, meet the puppeteers and meet the doll. I go into the studio. I guess it was break time for the carps who were building the, the set. And I don't know where the puppeteers were. So it was just me in a giant studio with the freaking Chucky doll lying on a table by itself with its eyes, like looking right at me. And I'm like, I'm out. Bye. I'm out. It's too freaky. I, I can't. I need a human near it to, to prove to me that it's not alive. Like, even, even in its culture, it's like, it scared the crap out of me. And, oh uh, but, um, but the different versions, uh, you know, I don't want to give away all the, all the, all the secrets of uh, Don, Don Mancini's world, but there are multiple versions, of course. There's the half doll that you need to do for close ups, there's uh, the realistic uh, uh, head to toe doll that needs to be there. Uh, and he does not like using CGI. He still likes to no. do the old school puppeteering. Sometimes there is some assistance uh, in that when when you absolutely need it. But he likes to use the real puppet, and that's why it's so visceral. That's why the, even the movies made in the you know the 2016 and 18 versions are are that effective because he is true to the old fan base that want the puppet. They don't want a fully CGI. Like remember when Star Wars did the full CGI Yoda, and everyone went. Oh, come on. Like, where's the, you know, it just wasn't yeah. as cool as it could have been. So him being that true to the, the culture of it really pays off in that respect. So, Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I, I just have a, I have one more quick question for you. Um, a friend of mine uh, lives out in kind of the sticks, kind of the boonies uh, just outside of Winnipeg. But he, he told me that you guys may have filmed a little bit at Okamak Marsh. Is that uh? Oh my God, yes. <laughs> is that true? Yeah. <laughs> oh, so uh, what what was it like? Where you got you guys were filming in the winter, I believe, right? Yeah, it was the coldest effing days ever. <laughs> so that sequence was oh my God, you just brought back like a hundred memories I haven't thought about in years. <laughs> we had to find that was for um, that was for uh, Cult of Chucky because it was right. the insane asylum. So we don't have an insane asylum in Winnipeg, right? We have some cool buildings, but to have it be out in the, you know, the story wanted this, you know, this truck driving on this lone road and finding this insane asylum, but we didn't quite have all the things we needed. So what we did was the front of the insane asylum and the iron gates that he wanted was at the old police station downtown, you know, right on Princess there that's now not, it's been knocked down. So we used that as the front facade where the car would pull up and the iron gates are there and, you know, Fiona Doroff's character would go and go in and out of. That was the cool building look that we used for that. But we needed a reverse. The reverse was looking into Red River College. Well, that's not out right. in the boonies. So the reverse, we took the iron gates and put them out at Oak Hammock Marsh. And if you go out, if you've ever been there, you'll know there's a big teardrop and pull in and it's all rural. So now you get this beautiful 
high crane shot of this lone car coming into the insane side. I'm pulling up to the loop with the iron gates, and now you can sew those two shots together, the two completely different locations. But when it's all cut together, it looks like we created an insane asylum out in the middle of nowhere in Winnipeg. And so, yeah, we shot out there for, I think, two nights. And we got that was the night we got snowed in. Or we, we, had, oh, to call, no. we had to call a wrap because we were getting 30 centimeters. Producers came and said, sorry, guys, we got to pull the plug. The crew need to start heading home because the roads were icing up. So I remember that night. Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> and it was yeah, so yeah. cold, the animatronics were freezing up on the doll in the backseat of the car. I remember <laughs> oh, man. They had hair dryers on the motors trying to warm it up and all kinds of stuff. Wow. <laughs> You know, I when he when my friend told me that you guys filmed in Okamak Marsh, I, I watched it, I watched it, I just could not piece together. So that just brings back the magic of editing that you talked about before. Yeah, absolutely was, amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah no, I uh, Jimmy J- Jimmy is a, a friend of Martin, who's a friend of mine, which makes Jimmy as good a friend of mine now as as Martin is. Um, but Jimmy's like the horror infusion I didn't have in my life. So when he came back on the oh, show, cool, so like, yeah. like I have slowly but surely started to incorporate more horror into my diet, and and it, I owe it all to to this man. So that and as when I looked through your resume, I was like, Chucky, oh, we gonna have some fun with Chucky. Um, I want to ask, did did anybody play poker with Tilly? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Uh, I don't know who, but I think I heard rumors of that happening somehow. Yeah. Did, did she take all their money? I hope she did. Actually, yeah, I was gonna say, I think everyone was uh, uh, aware of her prowess in that regard. And <laughs> smart enough to say no, you know. But I think there was. I think John, Don, and Tilly uh, offered up to the. I think there was a guys. We could do a little fun game of, of poker, and a lot, a lot of people are like, no thanks. It's <laughs> she's too good. I'm good. I'm good. Let her go to the casino. Let her take the government's money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh my God. All right. So uh, Jimmy's from Selkirk. And Burden of Truth uh, is one great Canadian crime drama or lawyer. Yeah. yeah, crime drama, I guess. Yeah. Just not from the sense of like, you know, your typical crime drama. It's it's small town. It's rural. It's uh, uh, what's the, um, I can uh, emote to it. Like, I understand it. I, I there's a little bit of small town in me. And when I see it, it just makes my heart grow two sizes bigger because it's not a place that would traditionally be interesting in network television, right? Like small town lawyer problems is not, you know, by definition attractive. And then you watch Crook and Mooney and I've only got to see the first season because I just got sucked in. There's just too much to watch. There's just too much to fucking watch. (laughs) And um, the first season, uh, for those who don't know it it's it's i i remember it being was it about a infection like the water was contaminated in the town and and yeah. this uh crooks Kristen crooks character comes to the small town her dad owns a law firm and she kind of finds out that uh dad's law firm is representing someone in the town and she takes on the case and then it's dad versus daughter and then she meets peter and is that kind of a shitty synopsis <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it, they basically sent her in from the big city of Toronto. This big firm was just there to go make a settlement deal and walk away. And it was the uh, the attraction of that something's not quite right in the town that tweaks her character to say, well, I'm not going to leave quite yet. I think something else is up. And she starts digging. She reconnects with her old high school friend, Peter Mooney's character. Uh, and then together they sleuth and figure out there is something way bigger going on here. 
and they start unraveling the clues and you know it's about the girls in the high school that start getting sick you know and and they realize it it came from the uh, the polluting of the uh, the steel factory that's it unraveled. so it's it's um yeah i mean it's a it's a it, you're right the location wouldn't normally draw anything it was the characters and the and the very smart storylines that were so potent that you couldn't stop watching it because it was just it drew you in you're like yeah how how is that tied to that oh my god like it just every episode you kept getting some very big dramatic pull that made you want to watch it and and then all of a sudden you started to actually uh care about and feel for that small town because it was you know big people trying to crush a small town but the small town started to get some grit because of her character and peter's character and starting to actually um fight back it was sort of like a david goliath uh feel in some ways where the small town gets to fight back because the big lawyer shows up with those kind of people so it was cool yeah no it's it's fantastically shot and it's fun to see selkirk as millwood is millwood based on millwood manitoba is that what's what selkirk's playing as i you know we had so many conversations about that i've actually don't remember what where how we ended up it might have been a fictitious place okay in the writer's minds, I can't remember, and we just said we'll play Selkirk as Millwood, uh, and they wrote in that the distance is sort of cohesive to the story between Winnipeg and and Millwood, is like ninety minutes. It kept changing for our story purposes. Going, <laughs> okay, it's two hours away from Winnipeg, <laughs> but then they had to fly in, and then all of a sudden they're all of a sudden there. So it's thirty minutes. No, it needs to be an hour. It always changed for us, so it was pretty funny. And what what unit are you on for Burden? So I was always on uh, I was always on main unit as the first. Uh, my contract with that show was always like I'd, I'd first AD two two episodes with with one director, yeah. and then I got to direct two episodes. And which so two? Every, yours. So on season one, I did episodes seven and eight. Okay. Um, off the top of my head, I can't remember the storyline because, like I said, there's so much. But um, what was it like to have that show all to your own for two episodes? Oh, that was great. And I, you know, selfishly, what worked for me was that I got to be the first assistant director for like a block before I directed, which is actually good for me because it gave me a chance to see how the show was getting set up and how the other directors were setting up. Like when you start a new show, you're establishing new looks, new shooting style, new, you know, new relationships with the characters that, you know, uh, so I got to see that develop for the first six episodes before I got to direct so in a way a lot of the groundwork was being laid so it was a little easier for me to kind of get my teeth wet so that's a good thing um and by then the cat the cast knew knew me well and trusted me because i was on the floor with them for months at a time and uh and the producers got to know and trust me and what what i did as an ad and so it it was good it was um it i mean it was a, a dream to be able to do that i mean getting to work with peter again and 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 to work with Kristen and watching their chemistry come to life was also magic. It's just you couldn't ask for a better duo to take on this show. You really yeah, couldn't. The, you, you, what's you, that? I was just gonna say you really couldn't. What I what I remember like I remember the synopsis and everything, and, and but the, the finer details are are unfortunately lost on me, which I will refresh because I do want to. It's you're in the final season. Final season's airing right now, right? Or is yeah. it, it finished? Okay. No, it's still airing. We, uh, we're, I think it's uh, tonight. It's airing episode five. Yeah, 
I think it's episode five tonight, um, which I was the first AD for. This this season, season four, I directed the first two episodes, okay. and then I was the first AD for episodes five and six. So tonight I get to see uh, get to see our work there. And the director that I was the AD for was uh, Madison Thomas, uh, local local indigenous uh, director here. Nice. Uh, yeah, and it was really great to watch uh, to watch and be her sidekick uh, through her first uh, network television experience as well. So that was cool. Is that, I guess that must be enjoyable for you to be like, I was once there before and now I get Maury Chaykin winking at me. So, you know, (laughs) well, and you know, and you know how they feel like she, she does a lot of independent, uh, Madison has done a lot of independent, uh, you know, features and docs and short film stuff. So that's great. So she has, and she has a lot of writing experience. In fact, she was in the writer's room for the, for season four of Burden, you know, so she knew a lot of the story arc, you know, in the characters, even better than me, because I, I was on the floor ADing. I wasn't in a writer's room. Yeah. So her, her contrib- contribution to the show is also coming from the fact that she knows where every character is supposed to be at what point. Um, so that was a, a treasure to watch her work with the actors that way, you know, so. Madison, this is a direct shout out. You're more than welcome to yeah. go. And, and should try and get her on. I'll, I'll poke the bear for you and tell her to get to get on that. Please do. Uh, That's the... again, you know, it's like, you know, a nice, uh, a fantastic local indigenous director. You know, uh, it'd be great to have her come on your show. Yeah, no, I, I door is wide open to everybody in this province who works in film. So cool. Um, uh, the story arc changes each. It, the, the, the show centers around Kristen and Peter's characters, but the problems they're facing does it go through the it, they changes every season right like there's a new oh, yeah. problem okay so but yeah. their their relationship and their theme i mean her coming off smallville i i didn't watch a lot of smallville but i watched enough to be like yeah okay but watching her in this what i remember most about the first season is their chemistry and being like you know what i i'm not going to be i'm not going to lie you, there's a lot of lawyer shows out there but the reason I'm sticking around for this one isn't because of that. It's because of these actors playing these characters and this underlying story of small town family and old high school flame and just those really like relatable that relatable shit that we all like, right? That's baked into it and that that was like, okay, cool. I'm in. I'm invested. I get I got that a lot even from family and friend members that aren't just watching the show because I'm involved when they got to watch the first two episodes they're like i'm in and and they're like this is this is a great show and they were hooked and so like it's fantastic to to know that they're and we would meet people from selkirk that we use as locations they're like oh my god are you guys coming like we'll start scouting in the next spring for a new season and you get everybody that's walking down the streets of selkirk that know our crew that know me know kyle irving uh you know know our designer and stuff and they know when we start walking around the streets we're scouting and they're like oh my god tell me you're bringing back burden <laughs> and you got like legitimate fans in selkirk and all over winnipeg that love the show and it's that that's a that's a nice you know that's a really nice feeling to know that you have local support that are there to help when when we need it so that's kind of like the the jaws story of how bruce the shark didn't work at first and it took forever to get bruce on camera so they ended up sticking around the town and then you know the lady who smacks brody is just a lady in town but they gave her a role because they got to know her right and after that scene she was like i'm so sorry and schneider's like that's fine like whatever this is jaws pull your pants up lady and i don't he didn't say that but the point is is that you end up becoming friends with the people who live there because you're using the 
people who live there's place to put on screen so did that make shooting it like did that make that extra special than just you know showing up on a location and then you know using it like repeat business probably made it a little bit more homey yeah i mean you know again a shout out to the entire community of all of manitoba because we for all filmmaking we shoot everywhere and our our purpose uh and our goal is to maintain excellent relationships with the people that we that allow us to come into their homes to use their businesses to shoot and and make movies uh without them we can't do what we love to do so treating them with respect and and uh you know communication to say this is what we would like to do are you okay with it uh we want to put a camera on the roof of your house you know whatever it may be it's (laughs) it's it's an open communication and you know hats off to our producers on the show that have maintained a, a great communication line with like the mayor of Selkirk I, I know Kyle and uh, Kyle and Tyson Karen and all those guys that put all, all the producers that put the effort into making an effort to communicate with the, like the mayor of Selkirk and the other uh, that, that just ev- all the businesses that we affected totally. when you shoot on the main street of Manitoba Avenue you're affecting all those businesses so either a you're going to prevent them from making their daily you know money coming in because we're stopping people from going in because we're shooting a shot yeah offering them you know you know we'll give you a shout out we'll put your name in the movie or whatever whatever the whatever the deal is but having that communication is key to getting people to say yes to things as opposed to abusing that saying we're making a movie you can't you know like we're we're god we can do whatever we want so get back it's like you can't have that attitude and, and and burn a location you'll never get to come back again and we need to treat the locations and people of manitoba uh with respect and openness so that we can get to film uh you know where we would like to you know so i yeah no i i just being a movie nerd i didn't even think of it that way but yeah you use yeah it's the burn you burn a location and like yeah they would they would never let you back and i think that's why manitoba like we it's it's becoming a thing where it's like come to manitoba and the people of manitoba not only the film professionals here but the people of manitoba are like yeah we like that you come here right they like that their property was used or they're in, in they're in the background like it's oh sure. cool th- like we're all fans here right like it's not too and and you know what sure. whatever there's something to be said about you know the big you know toronto vancouver la new york london um to be said about a me- metropolitan city that can carry the studio sizes that they have but here it's niche and it's special and it's earned and it's respected and yeah you guys work you're hard in the paint film selkirk <laughs> everybody needs to film selkirk i love it what i love most about uh burden of truth is that you guys don't just shoot manitoba avenue you know what i mean like a lot of movies come in and they will just use that street and i get why because it has uh, a beautiful small town kind of feel to it right like i remember maybe a couple years ago uh sean penn was in town shooting a movie and he was just using the uh the old gary theater Mm -hmm. and it was just it it was incredible to have him in town and to physically see him in person i know the people in town uh love burden of truth and love being able to be a part of something that's shown on tv and they just love to be a part of it well uh, jimmy there's not there is not a alley street or building that i have not walked past scouting in all of selkirk (laughs) not just for burden but for many uh, other shows too but burden specifically because we shoot manitoba or sorry winnipeg and then we shoot selkirk like that's pretty pretty much it 
Um, we do have a few exceptions to that, but so we have literally had to uh, to prevent our trucks from moving too much because that's very expensive and time consuming. We try to camp out and then just like push our carts down the street to find different looks. And so we have literally walked every darn street and we know every street, every house, every business, uh, every possible angle to, to scout. And so all of us unburdened uh, Mo Selkirk as if we grew up there. <laughs> right on. Happy to hear it. Um, what, what's, what's it like directing Kristen and Peter? I mean, Peter's, I, I told you before this that I, like and th this is not a humble brag because we we went to the same school we did not really know each other but i just oh knew. did you really yeah we did and uh i remember when he did his first commercial and he came back and everybody was giving him giving him the crowd, yeah the, 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 uh, peter if you're listening to this i sent you an email to your agent asking you to come on the show but you're busy and i respect that no, i'm just kidding um but uh no i i it was it was a cute commercial that he did but watching now i'm like you charming devil when did you grow up to be so fucking handsome and good? <laughs> yeah, I mean, working with the two of them is uh, is just it's just a dream because they they can give you everything you want. I mean, look on these kind of a shows, like they they will know your character better than I I will, right? Like I see things from I have to you know you have to keep so many things in your uh, in your head as you're going through. Obviously, you got to keep track of everyone's character arcs, but especially Peter and Kristen and Kristen. Uh, them being producers uh, they're part of the writing room before they even get here so they they read the preliminary script so they know uh what's coming and so they are part of that process they know their damn characters they know when they're going to want to do something so directing them it's more of a letting them kind of have the opportunity to do uh opportunities that they want to try right they know what they're going to do you can't ask them to do something that's out of character you can't just say try this way and it's because like, they'll tell you, like, my character would never do that. So, but me being on the show, you know that. You kind of watch how they work. You watch how they are. And really, you know, they're just wonderful to sit back. Sometimes you just get, like, you just sit there and watch them. And you're like, oh, right, cut. Sorry, I just got really drawn into it. Uh, because they know each other so well. And, you know, you give them, uh, you know, three takes or something. And they'll give you something different every time. And it's wonderful to watch. And the odd time, you just have to give them little notes, and it's mostly because of the camera's doing something a little different on this take. So just be aware we're moving over here so that you can get that moment you want to sell on that. So it's it's great. It, it's I don't want to say it's easy. It's not about whether it's easy or hard. It it makes They make it fun for you to direct with them because it's very collaborative. And they're so, even in the stressful environment, this season four, we had to shoot in covid times with masks and shields and this process of cleaning your hands and the surface where the creative process got interrupted so much because of the guidelines we had to do but yet we all still found a way to laugh and have a good time when we cut there's peter making a joke again and relaxing everybody you know peter's job is to it seems to relax the crew with a joke <laughs> uh, you know so he's i mean i met him in 2006 when he was on falcon beach so um, when he was like, I think the local doctor, I was like, what are you, 23? You're a doctor already? <laughs> was on that show. Yeah. But uh, they're wonderful people. They are got hearts of gold. They care about everybody so much and they work their asses off because you couldn't do a crunch schedule like this show without people like that, that just, they come to work so prepared, uh, ready with a great attitude and they just kick ass every day. They go home, they come back and do it all over again for three months. 
I mean, you, you can tell that they get where they are going in their careers because of the type of hard work that they pull off and their talent. They're just, they're just wonderful to watch. Yeah. He was, he was also great. He was great on rookie blue too. I, I mean, like, Oh yeah. Rookie blue too. Of course. Like I, I was like, okay, man, I'm like, I'm glad, I'm glad this, I'm glad this worked out for you. I'm glad I, I it's great to watch you and, and her, I mean, yeah, she's, she's like, she's badass on screen. She is badass. Yeah. She can pull badass out pretty quick. Um, another item of note, my friend Megan Sadomsky's twins were in, uh, one of the episodes. Oh my God. That, that was your, that was your friend. She had the twins. Yeah. yeah she had the twins. Yeah. And I, I saw a shot they of it. They were amazing. My God, the working with those babies, like working with babies is always a scary thing. When you read it in the script, you're like, Oh my God, we have to have a baby on set. <laughs> um, but honestly, her kids were just, I, I don't want to say that they did everything that you want to do, but they did everything we needed them to do. It was incredible. <laughs> Dude, we Megan, we need your baby to, I'm sorry, I know this is a weird request, but can your baby be cranky when she comes in the door? Oh, that's easy. No problem. Roll camera, you know, uh, or we need your kid to laugh. No problem. I could just, it was amazing. And that kid, yep. and when you watch season four and you watch this kid, that kid's on screen a lot. And it's because we didn't have to do a lot of cheating with the baby. Like, yes, you have to use dolls sometimes to hear that, but that baby was so good and, and, and kind of was able to give us what we needed. We, we, uh, we, they were on set quite a bit, you know? So it was great. Yeah. She drives it. She, she runs a tight ship. Megan is Megan, Megan. I'm not surprised at all whatsoever. That, that... She was just a lovely person. Oh, my oh God. she's, she's mother to us all in our group. She knows oh. it. <laughs> but we but then she had two twins and we were like shit all of us lost out now now like we go camping and she'd feed all of us right, right. <laughs> and now she's got these lovely yeah. twins that she gave birth to so yeah that's yeah i i babies on set i could only because it's like ruin that take right <laughs> you gotta yeah roll keep rolling rolling just give it a couple seconds uh I, yeah no i'm i'm so glad burden of truth did what it did what did they like before we move on was it was it always planned for four seasons or did they just go, we've told this story. We feel we've, we've hit the mark and, you know, put it to bed. No, it's uh sometimes shows like that. They're never, you know, they're never like, Oh, you're getting a guaranteed four seasons. It's okay. every season you wait and see how the numbers do. And then you wait for the bosses to call you and say, we got green light for a season two. Let's go. Writer's room have hit the floor and, you know, we're coming in the summer again, you know? So every year it was a wait and find out. But after shooting season one, you know, you, you can't guarantee this, but all of us felt so good about what what happened uh, as far as shooting-wise. We were convinced that if we got Greenland for a season two, it wouldn't have been a big surprise. Same thing for season three. Season two, I think, was even better than season one. Um, we really established a, a kind of a different look for the show, not in a dramatic, not in a big drastic way. Just it sort of really found its legs, I would say. So... Um, yeah, every season was just sort of a, a, a wait and see what happens. So I can't wait to go back to it. I think I'm going to, when I step outside of here, I'm going to try to convince the Shauna to watch it with me. Didn't really watch anything with me. I feel like I was listening to Kevin Smith the other day and he was talking about how like his wife finally wants to sit down and watch WandaVision with him. And I'm like, I'm almost. <laughs> I just got to find the right Marvel movie. Again. <laughs> she loved Infinity War. She loved Thor Ragnarok. I gotta. I. I, I think we. I don't know. Anyway, I'm digressing. <laughs> uh, 
no. So, yeah, anybody, if you haven't watched Burden of Truth, uh, be better than me and watch all of it. It's all ready to go. It's on it's on CBC Gem, is it not? Yep. Yeah, you can binge watch it. So. Yeah, binge watching the new the new thing. The new norm, yeah. How, how does that make you, like, when you, when you, I guess, coming from a director's perspective, not something I never even thought of, like, do you want everybody to binge what you want or do you do you like knowing that it drops and like the old model of dropping by week by week and building the suspense and the tension and the desire or are you like, fuck it, binge it? That's a good question. I've never really thought about it that way. I, It's funny, as an audience member, I prefer binge watching because it, it just sort of helps me enjoy an entire experience a little more cohesively. Uh, because I hate losing little nuggets in between a week or two weeks or whatever it is, right? Yeah, yeah. But as a director, I would say, man, maybe the old style is a little better because you do get to hold on to the audience who's like, I want to know what's coming. And that anticipation helps with the viewing experience sometimes, I always found. You know, like as a kid, you, oh, my God, Raiders of the Lost Ark is coming in theaters in three months. And just, you know, sometimes it's just that uh, is what makes watching something special. And maybe binge watching takes a little bit of that away, um, that specialness. Um, but I don't know. It may depend on the type of show that you're watching. True. Touche to that. Yeah. I find some stuff I'm just like, need it all. Put it into my veins. Shoot it into my brain. And then other Some of them require some thinking. Like I remember American yeah. Horror Story. I liked the break. And I didn't binge watch that on purpose because I, I – wanted to soak in it because it was so cool and so different that I wanted to think about it for a few days after, and then I was ready for the next one. So there's some shows that I kind of prefer the break. True. Okay. Um, I want to get to more about you. So I'm going to skip the stuff on something and save it for a comeback episode. Cause me and Jimmy clearly dig you, sir. So <laughs> it's like they say, don't give it all away in the first act. So maybe they don't say that. Um, I want to go to run before we move on to what you think on film and, and stuff like that. So you've mentioned American Horror Story a couple times. I take it you're a fan of Sarah Paulson? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, what's absolutely. that like now being – because obviously as, as soon as we started chatting, I was like, you're a film nerd at heart. Like you love you – love, you started this whole episode with us with I love – watching and being lost in somebody else's dream and then you get to fanboy out on a show but then get to work with the person who you got to fanboy out over so i mean what's what's that do man like how do you how were you nervous at all because that that would fuck me up if i was you well well my role on run was i was the first ad on main unit just for a few days because i had to cover my buddy who was firsting it um can't remember what happened i think he either got sick or something so i ended up getting called in to do that but at that time i was also they were looking for a second unit director to do a bunch of their second unit so i got to do the second unit directing so i was around uh the main cast for a good good couple of weeks uh running the main unit floor um and but also because when you're doing second unit you have to come to set and meet with the main unit director and have meetings about what their intent is and i have to carry that vision into the second unit work so I was around Sarah Paulson and um, and the other actress uh, quite a bit just because I had to hang Kira, out on set and wait Kira for her. Allen, right? That's Kira right. Allen, yeah, that's it. Yeah. So it's it's great, but I got to tell you, like, um, I was taught very early on in my career that, you know, you don't go and get all 
fan based up in actors like i don't i respect actors that i really you know like when i meet them and they are somebody i've always wanted to meet uh it's just a respect level that you know in the industry that i respect what you do but i'm not gonna fan all over you you know it's just it's not a cool thing to do and if you get noticed doing that you ain't gonna survive in the industry long because it's just not something you do so i don't get um i don't get uh what's it called You know, when you see, when you just get a big actor on set, um, I kind of take it as a, it's, it, everyone's doing the job here, you know, don't let your, oh my God, I've always wanted to meet you get in the way of your professionalism because they can see that from a mile away and they will lose respect for you and you will not get out of them what you need. For instance, Sam, Samuel L. Jackson came here and I, I was the first AD on a feature film he was here with, right? I was very nervous the first two days with him. And it was because of how he carried himself on set. He has a stature about him. You know, he's kind of the runs the ship in a way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and I remember losing some sleep over going, God, why has this guy got me all nervous? I know what I'm doing. I've worked with big actors before. And I just gave myself a pep dog. I said, you know what? You're not going to let him make you feel nervous any longer. You're just going to talk to him like a human being and just get the shit done. Do your job. And once I convinced myself, I went up to him the next day and he came in doing his thing and he just has a wall up on him, right? He's not, he, again, he's not necessarily a very playful guy. He just comes in, does his shit and he leaves. But, but, and we all respect that from him. And he's, he's a very, very talented actor, of course. And once I kind of broke through that, I realized, you know, I don't need to get all starry eyed about him. He is a cool actor to work with. Uh, I got, I have a job to do. I still have to help the producer and director get this movie in on schedule so i did i do that with everybody i meet whether they're a very established actor or not meeting sarah paulson was extremely cool because i watched american horror story and some other pieces that she did yeah. and i could see the talent that she has and it was wonderful to watch and there's a, a talent a lot of us industry professionals have it's it's knowing how to appreciate it quietly in our heads and realize how special that moment is but you don't ever voice it. You don't ever get starstruck and like, oh, can I get my picture with you? It's like you don't, you know, they just don't appreciate that. But I, I in my head, I was like, this is cool. I'm getting to be in the same room watching her pull the talent off. So it was cool. That's where I was coming from, from that perspective, yeah. was being a fan and then getting, I guess, the, the proper term is to nerd out on her talent, right? Yep. To, to, yep. to sit there and just be, man, okay, I'm watching it in person. And it's even that much cooler, right? Because she's yeah, she and, uh, yeah. And on the drive home after watching her, you know, that's when you get to nerd out. You're like, dude, yeah. that, she was yeah, she was very cool. Like, look at the the, the, the choices that she made that day. Which is, you know, you just like I never would have thought of that. And and so, but that becomes a teaching tool as me as watching as a director's eye. Even though I wasn't directing her, yeah, I was the assistant director. But I was I always take notes. Doesn't matter what I take notes on what her choices were. And I was like, I gotta remember that you know, sometime down the line that might become become useful. So it's sort of like using their talents as a, like going to school for filmmaking. Yeah, no, it, it's your toolbox, right? Like one exactly, day, yeah. one day you're going to need it and it's better to be like, hey, man, you know what? I got this key. Yeah. Nobody else does. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, Kira Miller, um, really great to see a production be like, oh, we need a girl in a wheelchair. Let's cast a girl in a wheelchair. Yeah. Yeah, I remember uh, uh, because uh, my buddy who was the first AD on it um, before I had to take over for like a week and a half or whatever it was, 
yeah, he told me that's like, yeah, I said, wow, what's that like? Because I haven't, I don't think I've had to really do that before and have basically a lead character, um, you know, go through that and think about all the project production logistics to make her feel comfortable and welcome and, and, yeah. and be, have all the same opportunities that everybody else did. And it was, you know, it was, again, it's like every movie, we all have different challenges to overcome to make the movie happen. We figure out, we talk to her about what she needs, what she wants, and we made it happen. And, um, and she was lovely. You know, I don't think she, I don't think she had ever done anything before this. I think, I think, I think she was right relatively new or, or at least, you know, I think making a movie in that size of a role is, is, was one of her first. Oh, so. she was great. I was glued to her the whole time and, and finding out after, yeah. uh, it's just, it's great to see that it's like, okay, there, there's an attempt being made to do that. And the look down that road first instead of like what name can we get okay no let's find somebody who like that was a that was a cool decision by the producers for sure yes very much very much so um yeah no i i i'm we're a huge american horror story family over here and ratchet on, <laughs> on netflix i just the guys know like i've i i i'm not gonna be all like i was the fucking shit over it like i got to interview kevin smith for skip the dishes oh sweet and I had to, I like locked myself into a zone because I was like, I was paid to do this. Um, somebody vouched for me and put their job on the line. And I wasn't going to be like, yeah, it's me and the Kevin Smith minute. It was like, it was, a thing. and I still got to fucking talk to him about the shit I wanted to talk to him about. And it was my best friend handing me questions to do it, which was even funnier because he tried to fuck me. But like, <laughs> he's like, he's like, ask him about Jersey girl. Ask him. I'm like, fuck you. I'm not asking him about Jersey girl. <laughs> Anyway, but in that moment i was like and i didn't think i could do it but i gave myself a little bit of a pep talk and was like just talk to a motherfucker right like don't yeah. don't don't fan out that's not what you're here for they'll respond better that way i find too right like they'll engage with you a little more if they see you coming from a from that side of it um i find that they open up a little more to you yeah you just treat him like a normal everyday person uh, you know, you you get you gain a little more respect from them instantly when you when you approach it that way. I find. Did you find that or? I 100% found that because I was like, yeah. it's gonna be really fucking weird if that like I would I would be weirded out if somebody did that to me. No matter. Like, yeah. So I'm yeah. like, why do that? Like why why? There's just just take a minute, take a breath, like you said, walk off set, take a breath, and and do it. And I was I was more impressed with myself that I could remain in a zone. It had nothing to do with, you know, hey, I fucking talked to Kevin Smith. It was that I could do a thing and then come out of that thing and do that thing for a length of time. I thought that was really interesting. And that's cool. Yeah. I guess cool. that, you know, do that enough times and it, it's your day job like you. <laughs> well, you know, and don't get me wrong. I do get starstruck. I've, I've, I've shook hands with Justin Timberlake back in Vancouver when he was working on a second unit thing with LL Cool J and I, wow. it was back in like 2002. And I was, I remember they were only there for a few days and I was going to be the second AD on, on this reshoot. And I just remember going, Holy, after I shook his hand and said, welcome to set just, if you guys want to follow us this way, we'll get you all set up with your, uh, they were doing a gunfight or something and just acted all professional. But I remember walking away going, Holy shit. I just shook Justin Timberlake's hand. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, that was, you know, cause back then he was, that was like the top of his thing. And, um, you know, I remember working with Christian Slater on a movie and he's like the nicest guy in the world. But, you know, back in the day when he was famous for like Robin Hood, you know, with Kevin Costner and all that and yeah, yeah. Just meeting him and 
there's some big ticket names that they, you know you you get the opportunity to be near and you just think how how lucky am I that I get to get to do something that's this interesting and get to meet some really cool people and then find out that they're actually wonderful people and nice nice uh, nice people not just great actors but you know generally nice people uh, as well so it's it's really really kind of um I got to remember how lucky I get to be sometimes to, to have that. So. Yeah. From where I'm sitting, you, 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 you're Charlie and you have the golden ticket. Yeah. Right. <laughs> oh, well, thanks. You're, you're very welcome, sir. It's like you, you got the channel zero stuff that we could have talked about. Like there's, there's so much there and no end house. Well, ah, fuck it. Um, no end house. The one. Yeah. Cause I got a couple of stories about that yeah, show. Yeah. No, let's, we can, we, I'm not going anywhere uh neither are you or jimmy that's right but, we're, we're uh, locked <laughs> so okay um uh oh his name's eluding me but he was in zodiac and so he was drew carey what's his name i'm so sorry um are you trying are you thinking about an actor that was yeah, in it the actor that was in it the one who played the father who who died oh oh it's this is horrible john carroll lynch John Carroll freaking Lynch. Thank you very much, Doug. He, I'm correct that he was in No End House, right? I'm not. I'm yep, not that's him. Okay, all right. Good. Yep. <laughs> this is a moment of silence. There. Well, there was four seasons. I worked on three of them, and but John Carroll, that was my favorite season. Was definitely that one. Okay, so what three? Se- we'll start there. What three seasons did you work on? I did uh, the first one, which was the Puppet Show. Right? Candle Cove. Um, Candle Cove. I did No End House, which was season two. Yep. Channel th- or season three was Butcher Block. I was not doing that because I was doing Burden of Truth season one at that time. Yep. And then I did season four, which was the Dreamed one. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And but No End House was one of the biggest, um, biggest logistical challenge uh, productions I've ever been part of. In, and like in an enjoyable way, in a stressful way, in a creative way, like what just. Uh, stressful in the beginning, but as we pulled things off, you're like, whoa, this is something we've <laughs> never tried before. You know, and obviously you've watched season two um, or some of it enough to get a grasp. Enough, because... enough to understand that I love the premise of the never ending rooms and not knowing what plane of reality you're on. And there was just a, it was messing with a lot of different ideas. And again, uh, ADD just oh this is shinier and then i just forget and don't come back to it but i did all of candle cove pretty much almost through all of two but i didn't watch butcher dream door yet but i want to more now because heather neal who you worked with uh costume designer uh, she relaunched my love and into it just talking i was gonna say i listened to that that episode and it made me go back especially when she was talking about that french uh, the french guy that came in and did the clay stuff which yeah. is whatever but but part of the uh, the big challenges on that show was um they entered a different reality so imagine like in a suburbia they would walk down the streets of the suburbia and there'd be nobody around yes yes and it it wasn't just one scene it was like, all the time 15% of the movie was them walking through bare streets of nothing. And we're like, how the f- are we going to empty out blocks and blocks and streets and streets of people and their cars? And not only that, but when you're in that world, no other flowers can exist, exist except the white orchids. So location, yeah, I guess, no. a location department had to literally contact 
hundreds of homes and asked them, hey, uh, so for these few days, we need you to put your car in your garage or get rid of it completely. Our greens department wants to come in and get rid of all your nice roses and put in white orchids. Uh, you can't come out of your house for like three days. Well, I mean, they can go at the back. But I mean, to create the vastness of this world was an insane overtaking of imagine how many people had to knock on doors to get an entire street cleared <laughs> and then do that 18 times. And not only that, but the no end house, it was about this uh, weird weird house that would show up in different places we constructed a house that showed up in physically three different spots in winnipeg so we moved a house i mean not all of it that we had some tricks up our sleeve but we we basically had it on the back of a semi and and put it at the end of a cul-de-sac and then you know shot all of our scenes with it there and then we moved it to a farmer's field uh of over at boonstruff farms and shot in their corn maze you know and then moved it from there we moved it somewhere else I mean, those kind of logistics were like, I'm like, how are we going to move a house, guys? And they're like, like, give us a week. We'll come back with you. So we figured big things out. And um, it was very cool. But I also had the hardest week of my entire career shooting in that cornfield because it was five nights. It was all night work. And it rained. It was October 5th to 10th that year. And it rained. And as you know, there's nothing colder than 12 hours in pissing rain in October 5th when it's like plus five. Yeah. It was colder than hell. All our lifts got stuck in the muds out there and tore up all the, you know, it just was insanely grueling for everybody. But after the five nights, when the sun was coming up on that Friday, Saturday morning at 6 a.m. Uh, or 7 a.m. and you saw the blue sky starting to change and I knew that we were going to be done with that location. <laughs> a big smile came on my face. I was like, guys, we made it. And everyone was just covered in mud and sweat. And just like, it felt like we went to war for that last week. So. But very cool. It's not like your Game of Thrones, that one that one battle they shot in the final season where it was like 22 <laughs> days of night shoots and someone forgot to tell the lighting department to turn the lights on. Oh. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and the other cool story about that is, and it comes full circle in my entire career, is that um, back in college, I met in film school, I met my now best friend, Aaron Schmansky. And back in film school, he was a sco- he was a scuba diver. His dad taught him to scuba dive. And so he learned how to do underwater camera work. So one of our student films had underwater footage. And our, our college was like, holy shit, no students have ever shot underwater before. I'm like, well, my buddy's a, he's a scuba diver. So we were getting some pretty cool shots. Anyway, he, uh, after graduation, he became like a doc shooter. He gets to go all over the world and shoot underwater IMAX and stuff. Like he has a, he's an incredible career that way. Um, this, this show that we're talking about, No End House, had a whole pool sequence and the girl going in her pool. We had to shoot underwater. My producer was like, I said, how you doing today? You look a little stressed. He goes, yeah, we need an underwater cinematographer guy, someone that could shoot underwater. And I go, my buddy in Toronto, fly him out here. Yeah. So I got to work with my best friend. We've been separated for years, him living in Toronto, me here. We got to pay him to fly him out here and he shot all our underwater stuff. Uh, so it was really cool to be reunited in a professional world with my friend that I've known for, you know, 25 years. So that was pretty cool. That, yeah. Cause she's, she goes for a swim, I believe after everything yeah. kind of happens to her yeah. and, uh, yeah, she jumps in her backyard pool and as she does it, it changes the plane of reality. And all of a sudden she's in an Olympic size pool 
it's supposed to be a void. It's supposed to be an underwater void. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, very cool underwater stuff. Um, what's is it a lot of fun to make creepy pastas from Reddit come to life? Oh like, my god, yes. Because horror is like my you know horror is like one of my favorite genres. Absolutely, it's actually probably it's probably tied with my you know epic adventure and sci-fi love it's just you know i was raised on friday the 13th and prom night and you know all the old uh, 80, 70s and 80s horror movies so i love this stuff because again this is total dreaming this is you being in someone else's you know nightmare and it's exciting to me because i love that stuff and the, watching them create the characters that had to be created for this is just amazing you know it's just watching them go from paper to a concept art to a storyboard to the Heather creating the costume for it and then shooting with it and you're like watching the evolution of a character that came out of someone's mind is uh, so much fun and it's just it makes me smile going to work every day thinking about that kind of stuff yeah no I'm sitting back watching it and like I mean the, the premise of it being like a traveling horror show I thought was, yeah. was super smart like the way you guys made that season look like when they're walking through town you made a really good job of changing the reality of their, uh, like to change the reality of that they were on the yeah. color scheme changed, the tone changed. Like there, it was, it was like a deader version of, of where they once came from and, and you know, the balls to go through all seven rooms of the house. I mean, yeah. there was just so many, and like, that was cool changing the rooms around and, and like, it, it was, it was like a, one of those, it was like a Rubik's cube. Well, and think about it this way too. Like it, when we're, we're all our, all of us department heads are trying to figure it out conceptually, that it has to make sense to us before we can actually figure out how to shoot it. Yeah. So you know, if you're like, so okay, so they go through one door, and 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 then why isn't the other characters with that person? Oh, because every door you go through, it it eliminates one other character. They go through it. They go through a different reality every time you go through a new room. So by it starts with seven or six, I can't remember. And then by the time you get through the six doors, you end up with one, and that is your thing. And I was like, yeah, but how do we physically tell that story? How do we put the camera? You know, we have to actually make sense of it yeah. before we hit the floor because you can't figure it out on the day. You actually have that stuff you actually have to, like, storyboard, or at least you have to logistically lay out the map. So we have to make it make sense first before we can pull the trigger. And that's the, that's the fun. It's sort of like being in an escape room as a production <laughs> and trying to figure out the pitfalls and the, uh, the winds out of it to make it because we got to make sure the audience believes it. Right. So. Agreed, sir. I mean, yeah, you can't, you, you can't really go into it without some sort of recipe in, in mind. Um, I want to switch back to uh, you for a second. Cause uh, um, hang on. Okay. Sorry, I was getting juice. My mouth was getting really caught for a second there. So it looked like I got fruit flies in here. I gotta I got to get rid of the get rid of the fruit flies. No, just fresco. No, that's just my house. Okay. <laughs> Honey, we got problems. <laughs> get rid of them citrus. Get rid of those citrus drinks, Jesus. So um now that you've established yourself as is a fantastic fucking director and i mean I, I i'm i'm so glad that i learned more about how all of the units combine i mean you it's it's there's too much focus on the fact that there's just the director and the cinematographer like there's there's so much more to it and i'm glad that you got to educate 
me and Jimmy on those differences and where you've worked as one and where you've worked as another. Because the second unit, it like I said earlier, it's you're you're the guy sewing everything together, making sure it's seamless. And then you know at the same time, the primary director is is in control of it all. So it, it's very complimentary, I guess, is what I'm saying about my education today. Well, the yeah, and the, to to clarify too, the second unit director is hired by the main unit director, at least they have a say in who it is because they, they want to trust that that person can carry their vision. Excuse me. They had to carry the vision into uh, the film because they're being trusted to go off and shoot. So you need to know what the style is because you're going to get your own cameraman or camera woman. You're going to have a cinematographer with you. That's also going to have to, they have to shoot the same style. So like for run, uh, I did all the aerial work, the drone work um, in the movie. I also did a ton of their inserts. So second unit can mean anything from establishing shots with, you know, extras of cars. It can be the uh, all the special effects shots. Uh, yeah. It can be visual effects elements, like we need fire elements to put into the main unit stuff. Uh, it can be uh, the drone shots, like wide establishers of, you know, the car driving along the highway by itself through the woods like all those drone shots was a unit i did for a couple of days um it can also mean uh, all the stunt work you know you get all the stunt doubles and the cars and you go off and do all some big action sequences because you don't want to tie up all the main unit actors with stuff that takes like eight hours to set up for like 30 seconds right so second unit is really um all the little bits and pieces that you're right that sew up all the all the things that are throughout the film that the, the main unit director is looking for so Lots of meetings and lots of uh, discussions about what shots to get, what we what we can offer, and 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 then you go out with their vision in mind. Speaking of vision, no, I'm not going to go down a one division hole. You see, I was like, ah, ah, no, no, no. Um, okay, so <laughs> I want to go back to Doug, Doug the person here. So, um, three films you think everybody should see. Oh man, I thought about this for a long time. Um, I've been asked this so many times and I just keep changing my answer. So um, I'm going to say Silence of the Lambs. Ah, Clarice. Yeah. Uh, Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> yes. And uh, I've got a, I got, I couldn't just do three. So there was that Fight Club because I'm a huge Fincher fan and uh, I've just, I'm in love with Nolan's Inception, you know? Uh, it's just that to me is I feel like I dreamt that movie when I was in grade seven and I'm mad that he thought of it before me <laughs> because I uh, one of my public speaking uh, one of my public speeches I did in grade seven and eight was about dreams and about how you can get lost down a rabbit hole and I swear to God when this movie came out I was like damn it I just didn't <laughs> write it but and do it before them. Anyway, but those are some just must-haves from my end. Shauna has a, a, a I, I'm pretty fucking sure I'm living with a fucking mutant or a Marvel superhero because she has this ability to. She said to me the other day, I had a dream and then I woke up from that dream and I was and I was in another dream and I was like, oh, Inception. What <laughs> 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 like half the fucking planet? wants to be able to do and there's a very small select few of people who can lucid fucking dream you mean that <laughs> she's like yeah I'm like wouldn't how many times do you do that a week three i'm like what why the fuck are you awake <laughs> like if you could if you could do that 
But I mean, being a filmmaker, I guess, too, Doug, like watching a movie, watching a director like change the world from like physical changes and spinning rooms and stuff like Inception is is a is a master class in like alternating your perception and time mm-hmm. and so many things. Well, it's and, and look, I've I've been very good at even though I've been in the industry like well, at least the unionized industry for 24 years, I'm very good at watching a movie for the first time like a kid. Like I'm not gonna let my logistical mind take over and pick apart every scene because I won't enjoy the movie. So I literally, it's it's almost like I can wipe my mind clean of everything I know about film and just enjoy what's in front of me the first time. Yeah. Then I rewatch movies and I start finding everything and I learn. I watch the behind the scenes stuff. That's when I pick things apart and figure out and educate myself on some of that. But the first watch, every time I'm like I'm like back when I'm 15 years old and don't know anything, don't know how they do that gag. You know, and just because otherwise I think filmmaking would be ruined for me and I wouldn't be doing this at this point. So, yeah, at some point, I guess you like I'm I'm I couldn't agree with you more. And I'm sure Jimmy couldn't argue either. But if you lose that wow factor from a movie, you know, like and whatever you like watching. But like if you can't be wowed for at least one watch of it and then be like, all right, back to reality. Like, I feel bad for you. Like, you know, it's. It, like that's the, you're there's a there's a medium out there that doesn't speak to you and hit you in your feelings anyways uh what's your most embarrassing moment on set okay day okay yeah <laughs> my very first day as a trainee assistant director on la femme nikita i was what's called the trailer ad and your job is to greet the actors as they pull up from transport and say hi welcome to uh, nikita let me walk you over to your trailer and uh if you uh, tell me your breakfast order. I'll get that for you. And uh, we'd like to see you in the hair and makeup trailer in 10 minutes. Uh, your costume will be laid in your room and momentarily. And then you just guide them through that process. And then when the first AD calls them on the walking, they're like, Doug, send that actor to set, please. And then you put them in a shuttle and they go to set. So, okay, I get all that. And um, so I, this actress showed up, but got her already an hour later. My first AD calls. And okay quick little backstory to understand where we were we were downtown toronto the, all the trucks were parked on front street um the sequence was a huge bank robbery swat teams out everywhere so there's extras there's special skills extras with guns out uh big cars pull up like big sequence right so it was lo- we need all hands on deck to help coordinate the extras time the vehicles get all the actors in and out safely all that i didn't know any of that i my job was just to get the actors ready so i uh, Doug, send the actors to set. So I put them in the shuttle. I lit a cigarette back then. That was 1996, and I hung out with the craft service lady, and we just sit there. And I'm listening on the walkie, them having like a shitstorm of like coordination going. I'm like, wow, they're really busy over there. <laughs> and I remember my my second AD goes, Doug, where are you? We need you. I'm like, well, on channel one with a hundred people listening, I go, uh. Where am I? Well, I'm having a cigarette on the back of the craft service truck. Like I'm having a frickin' break. <laughs> Meanwhile, everybody else on the crew is working their asses off trying to put together this big action sequence where they could use my help. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm good. And, and all I heard was, get your ass to set right now. And I'm like, shit. I, d- I didn't know, right? But that was like, so now I know you don't get a break. You just work your butt off every day. And, um, and uh, one more embarrassing moment. It's not as fun as that. It was uh, 
the first AD is in charge of breaking the scripts out and the scenes and booking the actor, not booking the actor, but basically telling the casting director and the everybody that what days they work. Okay. Sometimes if there's a rewrite, uh, you know, you, you, your job is to go through those rewrites and make sure they didn't add a character to a scene or taken one out. When you accidentally book an actor, it's going to cost production 1500 bucks. If you accident, uh, and that is like a fireable offense. And so <laughs> your job as a first and as an AD is after right before you put out your bookable paperwork, you double check every goddamn scene and you make sure that you haven't missed a character. You haven't missed an actor because when you get on set and the director is, oh, let's do this, shoot this scene. Okay, great. We'll bring in the actors and you're sitting there with the actors and you read the scene and Alice comes out of the cabin. Alice. <laughs> Doug, where's Alice? Oh, she's... Hold on. Uh, one second. Go to channel two. <laughs> I, I missed. I missed once in my many years. I missed it. And we all missed it. Even my second AD, when they made the call sheet, they're supposed to reread the scenes. I should have checked it. Somehow, we all missed getting this out. She's still at the freaking hotel. in Cal This is when I was in Calgary working. Uh, and we missed it. And I was just so embarrassed because I had to tell the director said, I, I, I don't even know what to, what to do right now. Uh, we don't have an actor that's for the scene. He goes, but this is where I learned a trick. The director's like, don't worry. We have the front of that cabin as a build in our studio, right? I said, yes. And he said, don't worry. We'll play the scene with the other actors up here. We'll put the stand in in her clothes at the back and she can emerge out of the cabin as soft focus. And then when we get to the studio, we'll shoot her close up calling to her sister. I was like, holy shit you just saved my career but it was so i was so super embarrassed because that should never happen but but that director thought very quickly on their feet yeah and that was the fix and i just so that's a trick i will always carry with me in case we ever run into that scenario again which that's happened before and uh so there you go that's this is that's those are both good stories they're both equally i i i stamped those embarrassing for sure i'm embarrassed <laughs> I love this. It was awkward. awkward. The, the, the silence on set in front of 75 people watching me go pale as I yeah. got to have an actor. That's pretty bad. So, who do you dream of working with? Oh, God. Oh, man. Well, I, I would love to just be a fly on the wall and watch David Fincher work. I just think his mind is so, you know. It's just so out there that I, I, I want to know how he comes to make certain decisions. And I just love his style so much that I, I've admired him since, I think, what, Memento, you know, uh, and just watching watching how he uh, visualizes the scene and like, like Fight Club. I remember in the theater, and you know, when you see that one frame of Brad Pitt's character and you're like, how'd you do that? Did you see that? <laughs> yeah. What the hell is that doing in a movie? Yeah, you know what I mean, and just like anyway, I just I, I admire that so much that I would love to tap into that uh, thinking. And then actor-wise, this is uh, going to be funny, but like man, Scarlett Johansson's been on my list since the early early goings on of her career. I just think she's uh, well, a very talented actress, um, and I've just always been mesmerized watching her, and I would love to work with her and see what she's like to to work with as an actress. She's just uh, phenomenal there's a whole bunch but those have always been on you know she's been on that 
wish list for many, many years. So I think those two would be some of my top ones for sure. Yeah, I think we could all die happy if we got to work with Black Widow. I know, right? <laughs> Seriously. Like, I'm totally okay with being like, hi, Scar Joe, do you want to do that weird laid thing you did in that movie where you flip the guy over? Like, that would be... <laughs> like, like, not sexually. I just think it would be cool to have that done to you and then to say the Black Widow did it to you. I'd just be like, yeah, she laid flat and I'd be willing to go into a body cast for you. I don't need a stunt double. Let her crush me. It's fine, you know? Totally. I will say you broke my whatever. You broke my collarbone. Fuck. No, she's she's great. And even like in her, where she played the the AI, and she wasn't even on screen, like to have the inflection and the tone and voice to be able to act that shit out is. I know. Yeah, no, she, she kind of kind of do it all, right? So, and even in Sing, you know that animation feature. Right? Yeah, she's just got a great voice. She's fun, and it's just really. She has know. two albums, I believe. Yep. Like not one of the like many people don't know that Scarcho has albums, and she got that jazzy bluesy voice that almost a timeless voice that way right i find yeah, it, yeah. So. i couldn't agree more uh what's one thing every director needs to know i don't know if needs to know is such a interesting way of wording it because it, it, that that makes it assume that i know all the tricks and i think that filmmaking is a individual process with different creative approaches. But when I, maybe the, maybe any advice I could give a, a director, because who am I to, to sort of offer that up, but um, something that works for me that I, uh, that I could share with people that are either just starting out or wanting to know is, is trust the, the, the people that you put together to make the movie and trust your department heads, you know, um, because all of those people are artists too and collaborating with other artists is part of the the joy of making movies um there are many different ways to make movies uh you know in that regard but i what i've seen work the best in my career is when you actually get to trust your designer you trust your costume designer and and your lighting guys and your props people to to bring forth their artistic talents and only from that, when you get the best, when you let people breathe and you let people bring their talents to the floor, and then you get to see what they can offer and then take those and use it to make the best product, best story possible, um, I think is, is, a, is a recipe for success. Um, so keep that in mind, treat everybody with respect, try and get to know your crew and your cast on a, you know, you know, on more of a personal level you'll find people uh, will trust and open up to you more. And I think that just opens up the creative floodgates a little better. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was listening to somebody talk about the whole Tom Cruise blowing up on set, Christian Bale blowing up on set, like certain directors, you know, demanding and treating well, the Joss Whedon shit from the shit. Um, like it doesn't work and it makes everybody clam up. I would imagine like in, in, in treating anybody in that way would make them clam up from doing the best thing that they're supposed to do so in that environment it doesn't yeah there's only going to be certain yeah there's only going to be certain personalities that do well in that environment and maybe thrive on that but i i can tell you from being that ear from crew over all my years i've i've heard the you know i've heard what works and what doesn't work and i and uh so what i i remembered that when i get to the director's chair i want to make sure i treat everybody with the equal respect that they're that they're wanting from me 
uh, and I will respect them and trust their judgment and their creativity. And uh, in that, I have found that I, I, I seem to work and there's a better working environment on our sets when that happens. And that's what I want to show up to work to every day. I don't want a toxic environment. I don't want, uh, you know, there's already enough stress in a movie production because of the schedule and the time constraints yeah. uh, that you don't need to add to that. So, Last question. And this is about here. And, and I didn't even ask you earlier. I guess I should. Like, you, you were born in Ontario, grew up in Ontario, and then moved here at some point? Or were you born here and then lived in Ontario? And Yeah, raised- quick... I- yeah, just a quick summary. I basically grew up in Orangeville, Ontario, which is an hour outside of Toronto, yeah. you know, moved to Toronto uh, to go to film school. And I worked in the film industry for five years there. That La Femme Nikita kind of covered most of that. Yep. And um, then I moved to Vancouver because I always wanted to go to Vancouver because I was a big skier and snowboarder. So I just packed up everything I owned in, 19, uh, what was it, 2000, year 2000 after Y2K. Moved out to Vancouver and... Uh, Worked in the film industry out there as a second AD, second AD for like six years. And then I kept getting calls from Winnipeg because they were booming at that point. That was like the early 2003, 2004. Yeah. And uh, they, were, they were needing experienced, uh, some additional experienced crew out there because they were booming. And I, I got one call and then I went back to Vancouver and I got another call. And I kept, and so I met my wife on one of those movies that lives here yeah. and we long distance dated. And eventually we had to make a decision about who's moving where. And it just sounded like I was going to get, um, well, not only our relationship was going to uh, flourish if I moved here, but also my professional career would advance uh, better out here because the competition out in Vancouver is insane. And I don't, I don't think I would have gotten a chance to direct as early in my career as I would have if I had stayed. And coming out here was like the best decision um, ever. So I've been out here officially since 2006. Okay. Which, okay, so then you can answer this a little uh, with, with a little bit more uh, perspective. Uh, what's so great about, and there's many things, but to you, what's great about Manitoba film? Because that's the whole purpose of this talking to you guys is to share your experience working oh my god i mean yeah having the present working with toronto crews and vancouver crews and you know when you work in those uh area like those big cities you're hard pressed to work with the same crew you know over and over again you're sometimes you're just always working with brand new crews yeah sometimes your department might stick together a little bit but even that can get dissected very quickly and then coming here you realize that everybody is so connected and in a great way. It's such a small community and everybody kind of knows everybody. And the more I started to work here, man, that just the, the support and the, I don't know, it's like the shorthand in the communication. Like after a while, when you start working the same crew over and over again, you know, that, you know, you know that uh, Heather Graham's got that covered. I, I don't have to, my director from out of town, if I'm the AD, I can, they'll be like, oh, well, what about costumes? They don't know about, don't worry, I've already checked with Heather, she knows. And it's like, it's like the shorthand we know. Doug Morrow and I are, he was one of the first guys I met here in Winnipeg and him and I have been buddies ever since. Uh, and it's just about like, watching each other's back and covering each other and giving them a little tip. Hey, Dougie Morrow, this is coming down the pipeline. I just heard the producers talking about this. And it's sort of like, I love the, the, the support you get here. Um, and man, people are tough as nails out here, you know, like the, the, <laughs> they are so hardworking that they, and they don't complain, you know, like the harsh weather, 
you know, we're all used to it as Winnipeggers now, yeah, but yeah, yeah. you know, you get out of town, people are like you, you people are insane. How are you shooting out in minus 30? And it's like, we just, we know how to deal with it. We know how to work in it. And our crews are just so strong-willed. They're full of heart. They have a good time and they're all buddies. Like that's the other thing is that once the work is done, then you find out that 18 of them are all going to the King's head for a pint because they're pals. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know? So uh, that's, I, I mean, just, I've, I've really, really learned to appreciate that small community feel and support here in Manitoba. That's, that's the endearing part about being here. And you know what? Like, I mean, population is going to climb eventually, but I don't like, I, I, I love that. We're never going to get too big for that, that that's always going to be part of the small town, small city film. And I, I just love it for you guys. I mean, I'm not in it, but I just think it's great to see, something that you've all worked so hard to preserve and, and make for yourself and then support each other inside of it. Like you, I'm, I'm, I'm an outsider, but I bet you can't go to LA and be, and throw a rock down a fucking studio lane and find the same camaraderie and consideration, you know, cause you said it's fickle and cutthroat and it can be. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Jimmy, before we let this man go, you want to shut me up for a minute? Do you got anything else? You know, man, I, I spent a lot of the episode listening and learning, and I could not be more appreciative to have uh, to have you on the show, Doug. It was wonderful to talk with you. Oh well, thanks, Jimmy. Yeah, it was nice to have an opportunity to, you know, to tell these kind of stories, and uh, you know, you don't you don't really get asked, uh, you know, too much about this. So it's it was a pleasure to kind of share with you guys, and and uh, I, I I just uh, thank you from the bottom of my heart for having me on. It's awesome. Oh, dude, you've you've right on, right on. Uh, you have a spot at the table, sir. Just just <laughs> say, hey, I'm free. I'm not on anything. You guys doing anything you want? We'll sit. Well, th this was to this. This whole thing was to be like, hey, you know, like I said, you put some spotlight on a really strong film community and, you know, a couple film nerds in town who do a podcast together. Well, that's that's right up our fucking alley. So that's a win win for everybody. Um, but like, come back and we'll put you in one of our shows. We'll ask you some questions we'll, we'll get you to play the game with us oh anytime that would be that would be awesome i you know what i smell jimmy i smell a doug and doug versus a michael and jimmy <laughs> well what's Boy. funny is doug and i all we have we every show we work on we take photos of the doug and doug and we always have these fights of who's doug number one and who's doug number two <laughs> so we we kind of have this uh fun rivalry going on between us but but at the heart we're good pals and we uh we love each other so I miss him. I haven't seen him in a long time because of COVID. Yeah. No, fuck that. Uh, it's, anyway. We're getting there. We're getting there. Yeah, um, we are. Anyways, Doug. Just a shining light. They, it's, <laughs> it's, I feel it's more like a lighthouse at this point. I think uh, it's yeah. <laughs> we're not that podcast. We don't pretend to know shit about a fucking pandemic. But uh, I, I know a thing or two about hope. So <laughs> that's, that's about it. But ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you for tuning in to another Real, Real Debaters production. Doug, thank you so much for giving us your time. Uh, like, I, I, I'm, I'm going to co-sign with Jimmy. Uh, super great learning experience. Uh, I, uh, the things I don't know, I love talking to you guys about that you give, you, you're patient with us and being like, no, we'll explain this to you because we do it all the time. But it's super solid to, to sit down with you guys and, and talk about your industry and, and get to know you better and and converse back and forth and have some fun with it. So thank you very much for that. 
Well, thank you for the ride, guys, and uh, gladly come and join you. And when this is over, we can actually hang out, go out for a beer, and uh, and talk a little more. It'd be great. For sure. Now, to everybody, if you want to check us out past this episode, head to therealdebaters.ca. That is all things us. That is uh, that's the website for the blog, the staff photos, picture where you can see Doug. After this episode is up, you'll be able to see all of his information if you want to track him down and converse with him off of our show. Uh, his information and contact him will be there uh, as well. The merch stand is there, and the skateboard machine, according to Jimmy, is still on. That running joke still exists. Um, <laughs> buy a skateboard with the Real Debaters logo on it, and then you can skateboard around and say, do any other podcasts have skateboard decks? Because we have skateboard decks. So uh, go buy one. It'll probably break, but just go buy one. They're, uh, they're, <laughs> that's how you market your own shit. <laughs> and then uh, if you want to donate to our cause, there's a donate tab there. It is a $1, $3, $5 maximum. If you give me more than $5, I will give you the equivalent back down to $5 because you're just silly. But $1, we'll give you a shout out on the show. We'll say, hey, you, thanks for giving us a dollar. You fucking rock because it goes towards making the show better. Idea number two, we will give you a little bit of our spotlight. You can send us what you like, what you don't like, what you would like to see on the show, and we'll give you a little bit of a, a moment where you're like, hey, XYZ person, they like the Titanic. What do you guys think about it? And we'll either make fun of you or agree with you. You can do that for a friend or you can do that for yourself, whatever you feel like. And option number three is to be an executive producer with our show for a $5 donation. You get to invent an idea for the show, create one rule that we have to follow for one of our debates, and we'll say it was executive produced by you. And you can do that for yourself or you can do that for somebody else. And then we'll put your name on the show. And then you can be like, yeah, I help these fucking idiots talk about shit. So that's on the website as well, too. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it has been me. It has been Jimmy. And it has been Doug. And it's been a pleasure talking for you. Tune in next week. And watch all the movies, kids. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>